Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to being a renewable energy partner for New England and working to fight climate change. Learn more at sunbugsolar.com. This is Boston Public Radio live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Is the cost of housing in Boston keeping us from the freedoms that are supposed to come with adulthood, like living on our own? A new report finds you need to earn $78,000 in order to rent a one-bedroom apartment here. Does this mean we're doomed to live the lives of Oscar and Felix forever? We open the lines and ask you. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Jim Browdy, first there was Spygate, then there was Deflategate, now Bob Kraft has been charged in a prostitution investigation. In baseball, it's three strikes and you're out, but will the NFL be more forgiving if Kraft is proven guilty because of his value to the league? Sports Authority Trenny Kuznarek joins us for that and more. Then at noon, the ACLU's Carol Rose joins us to talk about their latest lawsuit against the Trump administration. That's all next on Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. I am Marjorie Egan. Jim Browdy has a day off. Jared Bowen, WGBH Executive Arts Editor, is filling in again. Hello. Hello, Hello Marjorie. <laughs> How are you? It's bright Tuesday here at the BPL. It's very bright Tuesday. We're about, we're about to depress you, though, right away. <laughs> our question is, is it time to give the 40-year-old living in his parents' basement a break? Uh. According to a new study, to live alone in a one-bedroom apartment in Boston you got to earn a yearly salary of $78,477. And that means an awful lot of people well into their adulthood cannot live alone around here. So we're opening the lines and asking you about your living situation in Boston, 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Are you somebody who's outgrown the roommate situation, but you can't afford to live alone? Have you figured out how to live alone without making $78,000 a year? Is it worth even living in Boston if it means eternal life with one, two, four roommates? Or have you decided that living in a more affordable part of the state or even country is the way to go? I mean, have you moved to like Brockton or Attleboro or my hometown of Fall River and are driving to work every morning or taking the train to work every morning because you can't afford the rents around here? 877-301-8970. You can tweet us at Boss Public Radio or email at bpr at wgbh.org. That's bpr at wgbh.org. It is terrible, isn't it? I mean, it- it's really eye-opening, you, as you just mentioned, if you move to another part of the state or even another part of the country. I've, I've been to a few different states, actually mostly in the south now that I think about it, over the last few months. And it's really eye-opening. You think, wow, we have become so just immune to the ridiculous cost of living in this <laughs> area. When you go to a parking garage in you know, Ch- Charleston, South Carolina, you're paying $10 for all day long. And then you think, wait a minute, we've, we've just come to accept this. I mean, and this really is an epic problem, especially when you consider that the median salary in the U.S. is forty-four thousand dollars a That's year, right. and here, here you need to make seventy. Uh, what did you say? Seventy-eight thousand. Seventy-eight thousand. That's and especially for somebody that's you know twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-eight. I mean, you see these apartments over in Austin, Brighton, where there's like nineteen people in one apartment. Those are the, <laughs> that's not supposed to be there, and that's against no. the law. But you do see, you know, all these kids stuffed into these apartments, and the landlord in these kind of crummy apartments is charging these exorbitant prices. We've we've become like New. 
York City. Philadelphia, that's a cheap city. You ever go to Philadelphia? And it's a great city. It's, it's a great, great it's, it's just like Boston, a very walkable city. It, it's a great city. Washington, D.C. is the fourth most expensive city, but you could make 12000 less in Washington, D.C. and still get yourself a one-bedroom apartment. It's disgraceful. You know, the kids are, uh, can't have a place to live. They're living in the basement or they're living in their childhood room with all their little trophies from Little League. <laughs> <laughs> well, you joke about it, but that's what that's what it's coming to, right? Because there are all these studies now that show that parents are so not only supporting their kids when they're trying to get them out of the nest or into the world, but they're supporting them as their own children, their grandchildren come into the picture, too. So now they're taking care of child care, and it's a never-ending yeah. cycle. Is this an embarrassing situation, <laughs> or is this just okay? I mean, can you live with your parents forever? I suppose some people do, right? The old triple-decker model where you have right, the right. parents in the middle, the grandparents upstairs, and the and the newlyweds on, on the first floor. Is this okay? A lot of parents, I don't think, want their kids to move away. They kind of like the idea. Of, we used to make fun of the boomerang kids, the ones who went off to college and yeah. then came back and lived in the basement. But now, I suppose, with college debt and rents, they can afford to live anyplace else. Well, as, lo- as long as you're not screaming up the basement stairs in your yeah. T-shirt and underwear, Ma, bring me some more, more Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah, you from can, our favorite movie. Yeah, you really can't the do that. The Wedding Crashers. Right. And also, how do you date... How do you bring somebody home to mom's apartment or dad's house to spend the night? Can you do that? I mean, that was an awkward enough conversation with your roommates in college, <laughs> wasn't it? I can't imagine having to have that, that, that delicate dance with your parents yeah. about discretion. Or just, I don't know, do you wa- if you're 27 years old, do you want to date someone who's living with mom? I well, don't know. But, but at the same time, you think that this, is be- this just becomes the accepted reality, doesn't it? That, okay, this is how, this is how it is. I guess so. Our number is 877-301-8970, BPR at WGBH.org, or tweet us at Boss Public Radio. What do you think about this? Is this an outrage? Are you living in the basement? Uh, Are you concerned about living in the basement? Uh, um, Are you just out of college and up to your eye teeth in debt and you can't afford to go anyplace else? Ooh, something happened to the call screen. What happened to the call screen? We can't see. Oh, there they are. They're back. Uh, Let's start with Laura. She is in the West End. What's up with you, Laura? Hi, I just want to say I'm sad Jim isn't here. Philadelphia is a great city. I know Jim would agree with me on That's that. That's his hometown. <laughs> Philadelphia's his hometown. One yep. of my kids lived there for a long time, Laura. It's really um, terrific. It's improved dramatically, right? Oh, yeah. And my sister's actually um, at Rutgers Camden, which is right across the river. And um, those apartments are beautiful. They're very um, similar looking to the South End. And yeah. the price is maybe a fifth to live in there than in the South End. Yeah. But I guess Camden's not as not quite as safe as the South End. What but, do they um, ca- what do they call what do they call those apartments in Philadelphia? Those railroad floor throughs or something, where you have those long apartments with the narrow hallways and all these bedrooms off the side, the kitchen in the back. Yeah, yeah. I mean you you can get them for like cheap. So what's your situation? Are you living in, in so, a basement um, or a closet or what's your deal? No, no well, so I'm actually also from Philly, but I moved up here, so moving home was not really an option for me, but um, I feel like I have a pretty good situation. I'm actually in Southie, but um, my my roommate and I actually have our own bathrooms. Um, Very nice. So I think that makes a huge difference, yeah. especially for the dating scene. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you're going to want to, and you know, cleaning a bathroom if you're sharing it with someone else, and you know, yeah. I don't think I could, I could deal with that. But um, it's it's not cheap. But I think that um, only one other roommate and having my own bathroom is probably the equivalent to having, you know, to living alone in any other city, especially in Boston, because it is. It's, I think that landlords assume that it's going to be a couple renting out that 
that one bedroom. And, um, and you know, then who's to say that you're not going to start moving, you know, have somebody move in in a month. Um, and they know that you're, you have a dual income. So, so they don't feel bad charging, you know, 2,400 a month for a one bed. So how long do you think um, this goes, how, how long do you think this goes on for you? What breaks this cycle? When do you, when do you get to stop living with roommates and, and finding bathrooms to, to not share? <laughs> You know, um, I guess when I can, you know, I'm, I always keep my eye out for that one bed, but um, but it's obviously not going to be nearly as nice as where I am now. But um, I guess when I find that significant other to move in, that's right. Or, that's right. Or I bite the bullet and move out of the city, but I'm not really. Um, I'm actually looking into if I have to find a one bed, I'm probably going to go back to Philly to be honest. Um, <laughs> Laura, thank you. Really, <laughs> Thank you. That was a great call. You're illustrating exactly what we're talking about. Thank you very much. Lisa in Taunton, what's your deal? Um, I have three kids in college that I'm not going to move out of my house. I'm going to let them all rent from me because they can't afford an apartment and pay off their school loans. So I'm ah. off moving in with my wife. You're not moving in with your wife or you are moving in with your wife? No. We've been together 10 years, and we don't live together yet. And as soon as they graduate from college, I, I spend more time with her. But, I mean, my kids can't afford an apartment and student loans. And where are you? I am in Attleboro. In so Attleboro? My, my mortgage is cheap as cheap can be. So I'll have three kids renting from me, paying my mortgage probably in two years, and I'll move out. <laughs> Gee, so even in Attleboro it's ridiculous? Because I think of Attleboro kind of you know, on the outskirts of Providence. I mean, I don't think of Attleboro as being a high-rent district, but I guess I'm wrong. I think it's about 1300 a month, which I think is crazy for a two-bedroom, maybe. But, and you said you're, gonna, oh. you're actually going to charge your kids rent when they, when they come home? All I want them to pay is my mortgage and my utilities, and that's it. And I'll move out and live with my wife. That's a good deal. Well, I think it's a terrible thing, Lisa. You had to wait 10 years to move in with your wife. But that, I guess that's what you have to do in this economy. It's a terrible situation. 877-301-8970. Are you living in a basement or a closet? Or do you have five roommates to pay the bills? Are your kids refusing to leave the nest? Maybe you like it if the kids don't leave the nest. A lot of parents don't like that, you know, because suddenly they're sitting across from each other. <laughs> yeah. They've been married for like 35 wait, years. Wait, who are you? The buffer children are all gone. It's like, oh, God, I have to make conversation with my spouse now. Jack from Worcester, hi. Thanks for calling. Yes, uh, it's so important to be having this conversation. So I'm 24. Um, I live in Worcester, which is significantly cheaper than Boston. And even that's tough. But, you know, all my friends live in Boston or New York or D.C. And, you know, short term, you know, kids, you know, we work and are in grad school and can barely pay the bills. But, you know, longer term, What's going to happen 10 years when, you know, my generation doesn't have any savings because we spent it all on car insurance and <laughs> utilities and, you know, when we can't put down a mortgage and we just keep renting, which is not the way that the economy is supposed to work. Do you work in Worcester, too, or do you have to commute, Jack? Uh, yes, I, I work locally. You work in Worcester. That's good. Because I was going to say, if you had to drive from Worcester every day, that would be that would be hard. Well, they're going to put the the uh, Red Sox uh, AAA team up there. Maybe that'll turn everything That's around right. up there. And uh, the Woo Sox. Or, I mean, the worry though is that you know prices are going to keep going up here as Worcester develops more, which is great. But just you know something. To What's your rent? What's your rent? What, what do you get for the money in in Worcester, Jack? Uh, so we have a three bedroom and it's uh, five hundred each, which is crazy cheap. Um, but, you know, utilities over 100 and then, you know, 
car insurance and then just every other living expense. Yeah. Okay, Jack, well, hang in there. I, uh, President Trump's going to fix everything. <laughs> <laughs> the new economy is going to fix everything. I appreciate, I appreciate the call. Well, that, that's amazing that he's paying 1500 for a three-bedroom in Worcester because it, it, we were looking at something this morning. It's about $2,400 for a studio apartment in the seaport. And a studio apartment, you're talking about, what, 400, maybe 500 tiny, square feet? Tiny, And South Boston, South Boston has gotten hugely expensive. Uh, every, well, every place is getting usually expensive. Dorchester is getting usually expensive. I mean, it's just it's like it's like crazy. It's true. You have to move like you have to move to. I guess you can't go to Attleboro anymore either. I, guess, I don't know where you go. Do you go to East Overshoe? Where do you go to live to get an affordable rent around here? Um, Worcester, I guess, which is a long way away. Uh, is it Taylor in Rosendale? Talia. Talia. Hi. Thanks for calling. Hi. Great. First time caller. Big fan. Thanks oh, for taking good. Call. Thank you. In a day that I, without Jim, even better. So, you know. Oh, <laughs> no, we love Jim. <laughs> we love Jim. We love Jim. Jim yes, we do. We love Jim. Of course. So I'm calling from Rosendale, and I, my uh, situation, so I'm 30, and I lived out of, out of my parents' house since I was 18, and I lived with my roommate, and we've lived together for a few years and sort of developed this, like, kind of very 2019, like, mini-family we get along really well, and I know that that's not always common, but we can you know, come home from work at the same time, make dinner, like play with the dogs, watch TV, and have sort of like a little mini family now. And maybe we'll get married to, you know, other people and move away at some point. But right now, it's like it's a really nice situation. And it seems like people who are my age and younger who live with their parents have these really crazy high expectations for what sort of lifestyle they should be having, like, right out of the gate. It, that seems like you got to kind of work at that over time and live in some crappy places ever. You know, that is a good point, because I did notice this with one of my kids that was going to Starbucks every day. said, so, you know, you, you can't... I mean, you can't expect to be buying lunch out and buying a latte, a large latte every day. I mean, all these things really add up. That's a good point, uh, Talia, that... I think if you do stay at home with mom and dad, you might have these ridiculous, you know, clothing expenses and stuff like that. Or this is interesting, too. I feel like I've been reading about this more and more, as Lee was just saying, these communal situations where, yeah, you do create your own family, and then it just kind of works, because it, it, as long as you find like-minded people, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, Talia, thank you for the call. And Rosendale's getting expensive, too, but Rosendale, ever since they fixed up Rosendale Square, right? It used to be kind of dumpy. Now it's got, like, the gas lights and the... And the it doesn't have the, the sidewalks like on Charles Street, you know, those fancy yep. sidewalks back there. You can get the train from there. Hyde Park, also another Park. area where people didn't really consider living, but now people are moving there, too. Hyde Park's kind of far away, though. Talk about East Overshoe. There is no good way to get to Hyde Park. Well, it's not as far away as Fall River. <laughs> no, it's I not mean. as far away. It's not a while it was far. My sister and brother lived in Hyde Park. It was always a hike. There was never any good way to go. It was like kind of going to Mount Washington or something all the time. <laughs> 877 We're talking about the fact that it has become so expensive to rent an apartment in Boston that you need to make a yearly salary of 78477 bucks in order to get a one-bedroom. You're supposed to pay like 30% of your income in, in rent, right? So if you don't... No, I, well, some people say not more than 25%. 25%, okay. So that's going, that's about what, 30, 30%, almost 30% if you're going by the national average. Yeah, and that um, since the 
people make more money in, in Boston uh, generally because um, th the medium salary in the United States is $44,000 a year. I think, what do they say the medium salary is in Boston? I think it's, it's higher than that. But in any case, it's not $78,000, so a lot of people are unable to afford a place to live. I mean, this is pretty significant because we're number three in the country now. It's most expensive. Yeah. The, the number one is San Francisco. Number two is New York, which is a little surprising. And then Boston, cheapest, is Las Vegas. You don't have to make very much to, to be able to afford yeah. a one-bedroom in, in Las Vegas. And, you know, as we look at these piles of snow, <laughs> Las Vegas is sounding pretty good right now. I don't know. Have you been to Las Vegas? I have been. Isn't it kind of depressing in Las Vegas? You know, I kind of like the spectacle. Strip. I like the spectacle for about 36 exactly. hours. And then I'm, I'm ready to come home. However, exactly. as I said, I am ready for some warmth right now and yeah. no snow in March. Living in a sea of kind of neon lights is kind of what I think well, of Las Vegas. That, that whole area just looks... There are, way, there are places off there. I mean, Liberace didn't live on the strip. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Where did Liberace live? I don't know. Somewhere outside. Okay. All right. Our number is 877-301-8970. Oh, my goodness. I just insulted Hyde Park. And here's Justin from Hyde Park calling. Sorry, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you for that. I, I appreciate um, the love out here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but I really am happy to get through. <laughs> uh, I love I love listening to you guys' shows. This is really cool. I'm actually on the phone. Thank um, you. But I have to say that um, a lot of the callers here are actually absolutely right, and they've been touching on a huge part of this, which is just the student loans. Um, I'm a 24-year-old. I went to school upstate New York. I had an apartment up there I was paying about $600 a month for, living with wow. four people. Wow. Came... Yeah, it was like a tiny little, you know, thing. It was, but it was, it worked. Um, you know, it was Saratoga Springs, so it was not uh, special. But we we had our like, you know, lives. We were able to, you know, go to school and do everything up there. Come back here. I have a better paying job. I'm actually working two jobs, but I'm paying um, about fourteen hundred a month in student loan payments. Oh God, oh, Justin, wow. that's tough. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, and I've been I've been working on moving out for the last, you know, about eight months, six months or so, looking for places. I've given up on Boston, so I'm looking for, you know, outside of Boston. But it's just like, if I had, you know, even close to that amount of money still in my pockets every month, it'd be an entirely different story. Justin, are you with your parents? Yes, yes, I am. So how is that? How is that? Is that hard? I mean, do you feel like a little rested development sort of thing going on or what? It's tough for sure. It's like, um... (laughs) Because especially when I, when you've gotten used to living by yourself for a number of years, yeah. you come back and it's just kind of like, okay, it's their rules. You have to be respectful of them because they're your parents and it's their house. But at the same time, you want to live your own life and you want to be past that. And so it's hard to kind of uh, manage those two things, especially, like you guys said, uh, Hyde Park is kind of far away. So, it is. you know, coming back from bars and everything is... <laughs> It more is. difficult than I'd like it to be. Yeah, <laughs> and you, then the tea doesn't even it doesn't run far into High Park, right? You could take a bus. Well, it's not too bad. Um, I live on Fairmount, like right right oh. above the the train station. There. Okay, that's not too so bad. So it's not then. too, too not bad, too but bad. it's also yeah. Okay. Especially you know the the commuter rail is not as convenient as say the subway. Yeah, so sort of like semi Siberianized. Just make some fresh squeezed orange yeah. juice for your parents. <laughs> just, just, just take care of them in little ways. They'll be happy. Justin, good I luck. <laughs> good luck. That's it does give us opportunities for that. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Well, we are talking about the cost of housing in Boston and why living alone has become now a luxury. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
Whoops, I forgot it was <laughs> me that's here and not Jim <laughs> to introduce us. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. If you're just tuning in, we are talking about the high cost of ho- high cost of housing. Excuse me, in Boston, this new study says that to live on your own, you need to earn seventy-eight thousand dollars to pay for a one-bedroom apartment in Boston. The median salary in Boston is about thirty-three thousand. So that's twice as much money as a medium salary. We're taking your calls, taking your emails, taking your uh, tweets, asking you if you figured out how to do this for less money or if you're living in your parents' basement or if you have five roommates and you just are very discouraged about the whole situation. 877-301-8970, bprwgbh.org. You know, of course, this is something that keeps getting put forward to Governor Charlie Baker and Mayor Marty Walsh, and they say they're trying to address it, but, I mean, we are, it's, it's as if we're at maximum capacity. And there was one story that we were looking at that uh, you know, in a housing lottery where you have, because every developer is required in some fashion to build some sort of affordable housing that people have access to in any new development that goes up, so as a chance to live in a, in a great building at reasonable, more reasonable prices. But in a recent lottery for 95 apartments, 4,000 people entered the lottery. That's Isn't just that, that was in Chinatown? Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really sad. Well, I mean, if you are a, a low-income or a fixed-income person, or if you're somebody that's living in a part of Boston that they're developing, like East Boston, um, these developers come in and you're losing your home, which is you don't stand really a chance. horrible. Yeah. No, you don't stand a chance, which is why I think it's great that they talk about building new housing, but I think we need to do something about not throwing people out of the apartments they've been in for 40 years. I mean, and especially if they're, you know, 75 years old or 80 years old, you read all these terrible stories. Anyway, what are you doing? I'm often curious, too, about how when you go out, you know, and you meet somebody you really like and you're living with mom and dad, how you work that out? <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that in the first first well, section too. Well, think about that. Think about that when you were young, and you and you know you're out. You're 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 dating a lot. You've got you're in different relationships. I mean, I don't know. Can you bring somebody home to your parents' house? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. How, I, I know. Yeah, <laughs> Robert in Boston. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Marjorie? Fine. What's your deal? So uh, I work for a fairly prestigious university in Boston that I. You know, want to keep anonymous for privacy reasons. Uh-huh. Does it sound um, like Schmervert? Also, this story is about... <laughs> it actually does not. Okay. Oh, okay. Um, however, this story is about one of my bosses. Yeah. Who, um, you know, I, I don't make enough to, to work in Boston, or rather to live in Boston, and they pay me fairly well. Uh, my boss, however, because of the, uh, the cost of housing and everything, to, you know, to live the lifestyle that he wants to live, it's cheaper for him to commute from Chicago. Oh, my God. How is that possible? (laughs) Yeah, how does he do that, Robert? He flies in on a Monday, flies home on a Thursday, you know, works from home on Friday, and that's that's his schedule. Wow. So where does he live when he's in Boston for those three nights? Uh, He stays, yeah, he stays in a hotel. And it's still cheaper. God. It's still cheaper. Well, Chicago is a bargain. Rather than to move with a a family and everything and, you know, be put up in a, you know, find a, find a, uh, uh, adequate living space for you know kids and everything, and, and, and 
it's just it's cheaper. Well, you know, Robert, I remember it's that story crazy. about Obama um, buying that house, this pretty big house in Chicago, and I think it was only a million dollars. A million dollars is a lot of money, but a, a really big house in Boston for you're not going to find something for a million dollars. It's a really big house in Boston. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a good example. My, my my oldest friend lived in Chicago for years and years and years. Just moved actually, but every time I went there, I thought, why I should just move here because it's, a great it's, city. it's a, the same quality of life. It's culturally vibrant. It's a beautiful city. Everybody's nice and it costs a lot less just yeah. to live. Well, there is one reason. You freeze to death. <laughs> that water coming off the lake every winter is brutal. Here I'm complaining about the snow in March when, it, when there's bright sun. And yeah, I, I'm not sure I would withstand we the like Chicago winter. 10 degrees below zero for like a week just about a month ago. I think even the, more. Yeah. Didn't it go down at all? Maybe that was Minneapolis. Yeah, when you walk outside and the whites of your eyes, you know, the, the water in your eyes freezes and you can't. Okay, fine, Marjorie. <laughs> I won't move to Chicago. You have convinced me. I mean, except me. for that. You know, it, it, it's great. It's great. Uh, let's go to Bill in Boston. Hi, Bill. Hi. Hi. Hey, great to be on the Sorry, I'm driving. Oh. Jim's not here. Um, Are the, uh, you... So I'm a, I'm a real estate agent in Boston. Uh, I've been doing it for better part of 10 years, and I'm 33 years old. Um, so I see a lot of it. You know, I started in all rental. And uh, I think it is very, it's, it's, it's definitely hardest for, for single people in their 20s, uh, you know, if they're the young professional type. Uh, but a lot of the times, I think, by the time people get into their 30s, they either move out, uh, move out of town, make use of the professional opportunities elsewhere, or they're making in that 70 to 80,000 range and they can afford a one bed, you know, usually to buy something. Yeah. Um, the people I see hurt the most are the ones in low-income communities. Because the, rent, the rising rents there seem to make a much bigger hit. And, like, it's harder to make use of a service like a rental agent because you usually have to end up uh, paying the fee. So there's a whole lot of stuff you can't see, a whole lot you can't afford. And uh, I mean, that's where I really see the, the, the hurt. You know, Bill, I, Bill, I was struck by something I was reading this morning, and it was uh, one of your colleagues, another real estate agent, who was talking about the fact that she hadn't really seen anybody who was buying in this market in this city who didn't have outside help, you know, presumably their parents or even grandparents for a down payment. Do, do you find the similar thing or that people can't? You no, know, I don't always know where the down payment is coming from. But it's definitely true. I mean, because to be competitive, it's not just a matter of having like a 5% down payment. Uh, if you're in a competitive market, you need 20% because there's multiple offers and other people are putting that down. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I suspect a lot of people, especially if they're in their 20s, late 20s, they're getting some kind of outside help. And that's why, I mean, that's part of the, the privilege of being middle class. You know, the people who don't get that, they, don't, they, they can't even afford to move here usually. Uh, that's, yeah, that's a sad... You know, you know, one last thing, Bill, because the connection's not great, but just tell me, I mean, I would imagine that if you have a place that's renting for 2000 2400 something, a high price, and, and people might have expectations that are dashed the moment they step in the door and they see what they're actually getting for that kind of money. Does that happen a lot, Bill? You know, I think if, if you don't like what you're getting for 2400 in, like, South Boston then you, you might want to move. I live in Waltham right now, yeah. and you're going to get a lot more. you got to drive to work, or you got to take the commuter rail, which is not as much fun as it sounds. Um, but you get a lot more for your money. You can get parking. Uh, you can get a two-bed, you know, maybe a three-bed, nice three-bed. Uh, you can have a family. It's a little harder, but uh, but it's more doable in some place like that. Or Malden, you know. Yeah. You can get the Malden the M-Towns. In terms of location. Um, that people, if you have a car and you're commutable to work, you can make use of. You go down like if you need the tea. Like there's some really nice neighborhoods in Dorchester. They're not cheap to live in, um, and they're not cheap to buy in, but they're better than a lot of the other surrounding areas. 
Bill, you need a good real estate agent. Bill, you need a really good, good real estate agent. That's right. You need Bill from Boston. Bill, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the call. You know, I just got this email um, from Elaine who says um, she can't get anyone to take her job at the VA in Boston. She says, I've tried to hire three times, um, and she got two perfect candidates that she hired, and each one after accepting the position when they went to look for a place to live bailed out uh, because uh, they weren't going to pay her enough at the VA to, to uh to get an apartment in Boston, she says, or the surrounding towns, um, twelve hundred to eighteen bucks, and these people have student loans to pay. Well, this has been a huge, huge issue in the arts community as well. It's one of the major issues as as the city was undertaking a survey to understand how they could help artists to really stay and thrive in this town. And one of the biggest issues was artists saying, you know, because they're at the lower end often of the income spectrum, is they need affordable housing. They need a, not only a place to live, but a, an affordable place to work too. Sheila's just saying that she, her daughter interviewed for, for uh, various positions, actually as a librarian, and they require that employees live in Boston, as a lot of Boston government jobs do, but then you can't do it if you're right. only going to make 30 or 40 grand a year. It's a sad state of affairs, Jared. Yes, we'll have to, we'll have to brainstorm later about your situation, about how you deal with <laughs> liaisons in, and in your parents' home. That's, another, that's a whole other segment, I think. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, what do you do when mom and dad are right across the hall? All right, coming up, an investigation into figure skating finds that a culture of systemic sexual misconduct that went unmonitored for way too long. Sports Authority Trenny Kuznarek is here to talk about that and more. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live today from our studio at the BPL. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We are live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Jim Browdy is out. Jared Bowen, executive arts editor at WGBH, is here with me. Uh, so Bob Kraft isn't the only high-level sports executive getting into trouble. Larry Baer, the president and CEO of the San Francisco Giants, is taking a leave of absence after video surfaced of him knocking over his wife. Joining us for her take on all this and what and more, what it could mean for the NFL and the MLB, uh, if anything, is Trenny Kuznarek, anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. I've been so anxious to talk to you, Trenny, about a whole bunch of stuff. And the I first know. Sorry I went on vacation, guys. That's okay. I literally <laughs> la- I landed in Columbia. That's where I went on vacation. I went oh. to Cartagena. And I landed oh. and I turned my phone on and it was like ESPN, New York Times, Boston Globe, boom, 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 boom. Robert Kraft indicted on prostitution charges. I was like, what? This is the greatest start to a vacation ever. I don't have to deal with this. <laughs> Well, uh, you're back, and now you got now that you got to deal with it, Trenny. So the, the the tough question is, I, I mean, obviously Robert Kraft is just accused at this point. Uh, he's got to go to court in April of soliciting sex at a massage parlor that uh, was a human trafficking place where women were basically trapped there, uh, servicing man after man all day long, having to sleep there, eat there, etc. I'm not even speaking English. So, um, what happens? I mean, it, it he may be acquitted, or he he may just I don't know what's going to happen in the courts. But uh, with tapes and so forth, it, there seems to be a lot of evidence against him. And how do you deal so, with this? So we did. Have, we had Michael Coyne on uh, from the Massachusetts School of Law oh, great. Um, last week. Um, was, I believe it was last week, Thursday or Friday. He came in studio at NBC Sports Boston and broke it down. And he said a first-time offender, uh, what he would do as an attorney is he would have advised Bob Kraft to do what he did, which is plead not guilty. Um, and most likely a first-time offender will be put into a, what's called a diversion program. 
Um, so you'll go, you'll have to do community service, you'll have to, you know, learn about why prostitution and human trafficking is bad. And if you complete that, the record will actually be expunged. So it will be like this never, ever happened. But Bob Kraft, of course, as we all know, isn't, you know... Joe Smith down the street who happens to work as a plumber. Bob Kraft is a billionaire who owns the New England Patriots. So even if this is expunged from his record, even if he goes through this program and he does all of the rehabilitation, I don't know that his reputation will ever bounce back. I don't know how you come back from being, you know, someone who frequently, or at least more than once, according to documents and videos and what the, the police investigation more than once visited essentially a brothel. Um, you know, we could debate all day whether or not prostitution should be legal. We could debate all day is, you know, about the ethics behind it and, and visiting it. I'm sure people have vastly different opinions on it. However, um, if you take the time to look into who often works in these establishments, um, and you followed human trafficking at all, it is not just a problem. I think people think of it as being an issue abroad, right? Like we always hear about going to Thailand or going places in Southeast Asia. You go there, you find prostitutes, or even Vegas. The United States has a lot of issues with human trafficking. A friend of mine who's an attorney told me that for Green Bay Packers games, between two to 3,000 women are brought in for game weekends. What? Two to 3,000 women are brought in game day weekends. So this is a systemic problem throughout the United States that is not a part of the general conversation. When you go, the Atlanta-Hartsville-Jackson Airport is one of, I believe, the top... I saw a documentary. This is years ago. Um, but it, it was a documentary that said, I believe it was on like the top 10 list of places where the most interactions and transactions happen. If you go, use a restroom in the Atlanta Hartsfield Airport, where I, I just was for the Super Bowl, there are signs in bathrooms. There are signs everywhere to look out for suspicious behavior that may lead you to believe someone is being trafficked. This is not something that happens in third world countries. This is not something that happens in other places with lower moral standards than ours. This happens right here in our country, and it's happening in Jupiter, Florida. And obviously, it also happened apparently, or not obviously, but apparently also allegedly happened in Oxford, Massachusetts. But here's the issue. Bob Kraft has the heft of the NFL behind him. And, we, and he's got money. And every time I'm on the show, it seems with you, we talk about the NFL and what the NFL allows. And because he is such a huge figure within, is, is this going to get swept up under the rug? Because I'm a little bit surprised that you think that this is going to, to, to stay with him because... Well, it might stay with him. It might stay with him in the general public. I don't know that it'll, that it'll stain him in the NFL. I mean, we have seen time and time again, even when there is video evidence, even when there is visual evidence of someone, a player, an influential player, someone who can still be a contributor to the NFL, getting in trouble for domestic violence, they find themselves with jobs again and things. He may get, I don't know. I honestly Jared, don't know what will happen. I don't know if he'll just get a slap on the wrist and the NFL will say, if for some reason he is acquitted or he goes through the, this diversion program and, and it's expunged from his record, if, if Roger Goodell says, okay, you know what, we're going to fine you a draft pick and we're going to do something, but everything else is fine. 
or do they take a hard line with him? Because now, you know, I know Patriots fans don't like to hear this, but this is now the third time that there has been some sort of issue with the Patriots between Spygate and Deflategate and this, which is far more consequential than any of the other two. I don't know if it's like a three strikes and, you know, you're really in trouble or if the NFL looks the other way and says, yeah, but Bob Kraft was really influential in doing the last NFL CBA oh, and, agreement. And, and explain and, for, I mean, yeah, he's, th- yeah, he's people, playing that negotiation. Yeah, people know that he has this huge championship team, but it goes well beyond that. Tell us about that. He's really influential in the NFL. And Jeff Saturday, who um, is now a commentator on ESPN, was a a longtime offensive lineman for the Indianapolis Colts and now for, uh, and then also for the, the Green Bay Packers, talks about how Robert Kraft was integral in the last NFL CBA, um, that's a collective bargaining agreement, getting done. That Robert Kraft was able, he's a master negotiator. He was, he was able to bridge the gap between the NFL and the NFL Players Association so that this, the work stoppage, I believe, was only a couple of weeks into training camp and they didn't lose any games and they didn't lose any money. He has been a huge, he is one of, next to Jerry Jones, uh, in, in Dallas and the Maras in New York, one of, I would say, one of the three most influential owners in the NFL, maybe in all of the sports. Well, one of these stories uh, from the New York Times says also that he has been getting these great uh, deals with CBS and Fox to pay these huge, huge um, exorbitant rights fees. rights fees. Yeah, that is, um, that I would assume makes the NFL feel they're lucky to have it. Very him interesting, too, when you look at who he's negotiating with, uh, Les Moonves, to yeah. get these. Yeah. I mean, when you start, this is the thing I tell people and all the time. Negoti- ne- excuse me, negotiating, but he's a friend. He's a friend. And of course, you know, if you follow the news, you know that Les Moonves is out at CBS because of. Um, habitual sexual harassment and a sexual assault allegations. Yeah. I tell people this all the time. We, we put these men on pedestals and because they donate a lot of money and they give their time and they wear Air Force Ones on the sidelines, you know, and they're hanging with Meek Mill, that they're good people. We don't know who these people really are. And, and unfortunately, men who are, have money and, are in pow- and have power, oftentimes when you peel back the layers, it's not so pretty. We're talking with, with Trenny Kuznick. You know, as long as we're talking about owners, let's, let's switch to the San Francisco Giants president and CEO, Larry Baer. Um, he was videotaped in a altercation with his wife. What happened? Yeah, so him and his wife were, looks like they were having coffee or something uh, in a plaza in San Francisco. He owns the San Francisco Giants um, uh, in Major League Baseball. And his wife is looking at the phone. And if you read it, it's funny because when I read the story, I thought, oh, he grabbed the phone. And, like, how bad could this possibly be? And then you watch the video and you see the aggression. I, you know, who knows what his wife was looking at? He says it was a family matter argument. My parents have argued about family matters before. I've never seen my father not just rip a phone out of my mother's hand, but push her over. The chair tumbled, the table tumbles, you know. And of course, we live in a day and age now where you overhear someone of status having an argument with a significant other. Immediately, somebody starts videotaping it with their cell phone. They send it and sell it to TMZ, and suddenly it's it's public knowledge. Uh, He has taken a leave of absence from the Giants. This all becomes even murkier because the Giants allegedly were like one of these teams that were at the forefront of domestic um, abuse, that they were saying there was a zero tolerance policy for it. He donated money to domestic violence associations and all of these things. And again, 
people, you hear a lot of lip service from these people who have a lot of money and a lot of power. And how often now do we see, I mean, who was the, the congressman or the senator that um, Samantha Bee uh, really touted and pushed up and then, it, and then he ended up having to resign because, you know, he was like punching women in bed. And, and all, it's, it's like we, we oh, build yeah. these people up in our minds to be something larger than life and better than the rest of us. When, you know, just because they donate money to a cause does not mean that they're not terrible people. And it complicates <laughs> it that his wife has now come out and said this was a family matter. They issued which a often, joint statement. And, yeah, so then it becomes very difficult to interpret which, what happens. Which often because happens. The video, as you, if you haven't seen the video, the video is just awful to watch. Y- yeah. And, and how often does this happen, too, um, you know, where women, especially women who are married to men, who have the money and the power that I keep talking about, much of your life goes into theirs, right? So if you marry someone who is a billionaire or even a multi-multi-millionaire six times over, a lot of these women give up their own identity and give up their lives, give up their careers to be wives for these guys and maybe help them behind the scenes and they may be a huge part of their husband's success. But at the end of the day, it is their husband's success. It is their husband's money. And if you start to make a stink and things go awry and you have a, I don't know what, you know, a prenup situation would be like if one was signed, but suddenly you're looking at a lot less money, you're looking at a costly divorce, you're looking at maybe for the first time in 20 or 30 years being on your own. There are a lot of factors that go into why women stay in abusive relationships, particularly with men who have money, status, and power that you get used to. We are talking with uh, Trini Kuznarek. So uh, let's talk about this other guy, this John Coughlin, and what's going on at, at, in, in figure skating, Olympic figure skating. I mean, th- apparently um, all this grooming, and he, he was accused of abuse, and, and then, then he took his own life. Yeah, he committed, he, uh, he committed suicide um, after allegations surfaced that he had sexually abused minors. Um, which sparked a, um, when the accusations came out, it, spar- it sparked a safe sport investigation, which is the USOC's new thing, right? Rather than having an investigation internally, because, you know, as we saw with USA Gymnastics, yeah. that doesn't always go so well. Um, obviously, this is complicated, and it's something, I think, because the accused um, took his own life, we'll probably never have all of the answers. But this just goes back to, he I think... He was famous, by the way, right? He the was, national, yes. national Pairs champion or something? We, we saw yes. him perform at the Olympics, perhaps? Yes, and then he went back and was, you know, obviously, as many of these athletes do, they coach, and that's how they make extra money. Because, you know, a National Pairs champion in figure skating certainly isn't, say, a Michael Phelps who's getting a ton of endorsement deals. There are other things you have to do that you have to work through. Um, but to me, this just goes back to the conversation that unfortunately I feel like we've had on this show a million times, which is that our governing bodies for, for athletics, whether it's college, whether it's pro, whether it's the Olympic Committee, when a program is successful, they will overlook a lot of things and they will doubt victims. And this happens over and over and over again where we see, you know, women or men, and men, this happened at Ohio State with, you know, with the wrestling program, men who are, are sexually abused, women who are sexually abused, physically abused, you go, you try to tell your story, and it's downplayed, and you're, you are made to feel like the bad person, because the USOC, or the NFL, or Major League Baseball, they don't want the black mark on their, on their, on their sport. They don't want it on their league, they don't want it on their organization, especially because U.S. figure skating for a long time was quite successful, and they were 
starting to sort of rise again. And I think we talked a few weeks ago on this program about like Gracie Gold and her um, eating disorder and her depression and everything she went through. You have Ashley Wagner. So you have this, this program again that's on a rise. And the last thing you need is a sexual assault scandal, which is now exactly what they have. You know, as we see over and over again, where there's one, there seem to be many, at least in a lot of the sexual abuse crisis conversations right. and stories that we've covered over the years. Is, it, is there a sense that this is the tip of the iceberg for figure skating now? Um, I would think I, probably there's probably a fear that if it was happening, I mean, I can't imagine that there's only one person, right? right? I mean, we saw it, although maybe it is in gymnastics, to the best of my knowledge, we have not had another case of someone like Larry Nasser. Now, of course, his victims were in well into the hundreds. Um, but uh, unless I'm missing something or forgetting something, I don't believe that there has been another set of accusations. However, and this, again, sort of fell under the radar, but there were also some accusations floating around in USA Swimming that now we haven't really heard about. These, these organizations are very good at crisis management. They are very good at hiring a PR firm and figuring out how to do the things on the surface they have to do to make everything else sort of go away and fa- you know, fade, to the, uh, fade to the edges. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I'm going to be honest. I didn't watch the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, but they were going on while this had happened. And I believe that, that, this, that um, this individual uh, killed himself either, I think, before the U.S. National Championships. I don't know how much of a story it was there. Same with the U.S. Gymnastics Championships. At the time, the then president of the USGA was in Boston for the National Championships, and she avoided media. Right. When she finally did, she danced around and talked around everything, and then three weeks later, she resigns. I mean, that's what keeps happening in these positions, is that they bring people in, and they're more concerned, and, you know, stop me if you've heard this before, Catholic Church, they're more concerned <laughs> with protecting the institution than they are the victims. And that's a problem in our society that we've allowed to go on for far too long. And, we're again, we're... It, you know, we see it in the Catholic Church, which I think takes the brunt um, of the criticism, but it happens a lot in our athletics. It happens a lot in our sports where, whether it's spousal abuse or sexual abuse and assault, that in order to keep the machine running and keep it looking like it's something to aspire to, it's at the, it's at the, at the uh, behest of the victims. Well, let's move to a happy story with NBC sports anchor Trini Kuznarek. Yes. Remember, the, the, it was last year, right? The pouring yes. rain so much. You were a marathon runner. You were out there. Were you out there running? I the didn't Boston run. I year? worked it for NBC. I'm going to work it again for NBC this year. And God help me if it's going to be like last year. Yeah. I can't. Last year was the first year that I ever did not have FOMO. Usually, like this year, I'll have a little bit of FOMO because I really, I, I tried to qualify and I didn't, so I'm not able to run it this year. But. Last year, I was like, I'm so glad I'm not running this <laughs> well, race. It was because pouring it was rain. Miserable. It was freezing. I mean, and some people, if you couldn't get into the tent or get covered up, you're standing out there in the freezing rain. Awful. For, I don't know, an hour, two hours, maybe more. Oh, my God. Athletes Village, thing. if you're not underneath the yeah. tent, you could be out there for two yeah. hours. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we're all here at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, which is a big thrill about being down at the Boston Public Library. And there was this woman none of us ever heard of, Sarah Sellers, who came sprinting across the finish line. She won. She was the first time. No, nope, she was second place. I'm sorry. She was Des- Second place. One. Yep. Second place. That's right. And that was and, she, and Linda was the first American in how long? A long time. <sighs> was it 1982 or 83? It was a long time. I'm forgetting the exact time now, but yeah. it was well over 30 some years, like 35 or 36 years. So anyway, uh, Stan Grosso did a great piece with great pictures because he's a great photographer yes. for the Globe about her out in training. So what's her deal? She's out pictures of her out training in Tucson. What do you call those trees, by the way? What are those trees? Those cactus, cactus trees? I think yeah. so, right? Cacti. Yeah. Cacti. yeah. Plural cacti. 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 So this is a Boy, cool they story. Are ugly. No, I thought this was beautiful. Actually. You did? Yeah. Look at that green. Oh my god. I know it's green. 
green. It's not. It's not this. It's not brown and depressing and snow. And yeah. Okay. <laughs> when's the next flight back down to Columbia or Florida that I can get on? Uh, this is a cool story. So Sarah Sellers came in second. Um, and technically last year, because she wasn't registered as an elite, she, I mean, and credit to the Boston Athletic Association, they gave her her second place prize because technically you have to be registered as an elite runner to uh, collect the prize. Well, I didn't know that. So she won $75,000. She was unsponsored. She is an anest. She's a, I don't know. I know an anesthesiologist. Well, she's not an anesthesiologist. She's a nurse. Anesthesiologist. Yeah. Nurse anesthesiologist. I don't know if that's the correct term or not. Um, so she works in anesthesia, uh, in, in Arizona as a nurse. Her husband is an anesthesiologist, and she's just this woman oh, who gets excuse up. excuse me. It's a nurse anesthetist. Anesthetist. I know. I know yeah. it wasn't an anesthesiologist. But That's why I didn't who try. Who can you say that? A nurse okay. anesthetist. Yeah, whatever um, it is. So she trains every day. She gets up and runs twice a day at four in the morning and then again eight at night. And now she does have some sponsors. But as of last year in Boston, she had no, no shoe sponsors, no clothes sponsors, nothing. She just worked really hard and ran her fastest time. She has now since run an even faster time in the New York City Marathon. I think she uh, ran a 2.36 and change in the New York City Marathon in November. She's going to come back and run Boston, and she knows the odds are stacked against her. The chances of it being, I mean, part of, la- part of the reason last year that Des Linden won and uh, the, the, uh, the gentleman from Japan won is because it was a different kind of race. Like, the Kenyans aren't training in that. They're training at alt- altitude. They're training in heat. They're training in good conditions. They've probably, I don't know if any of them have ever seen weather like we had last year. So it was as much about grit and determination and gutting it out as it was about speed. Like they were the lowest, they were the slowest times for winners in decades. Where did she start? I was thinking about that. I mean, because if she was an elite runner, was she further back in the pack? So you probably are a little further back in the pack. So she probably had fast enough time. So the way they do seating in the Boston Marathon is they do it by time. So she definitely was wave one. Probably, she probably was even corral one or corral two. Um... I don't, you know, I don't know if they've ever said. My guess is she's like somewhere in that front pack because she had fast enough times yeah. um, to qualify and be ahead. Because um, she did finish, she saw the male winner run past her. And in this article, she said, when he ran past me, I thought, oh, I guess I'm not doing as well as I thought I was. <laughs> and then she said, she's hearing all, she's coming down Boylston Street. She's hearing all these screams and all these people are going nuts. And she's like, oh, this is great. People are really into this. I wonder how I did. And she, and she said, she crosses the finish line and she's like almost hypothermic. I mean, it's Ugh. been pouring and sleeting and it's freezing. And, you know, your body temperature's all out of whack because it's warm because you're running and then you stop and then you're immediately freezing. And someone says, you finished second. And she was like, wait, what? <laughs> and they're like, hey, you're, you, you finished second in the Boston Marathon. Um, P.S. You get $75,000. P.S. Yeah. She said she used it to pay off student loans oh, um, from going through nursing school and, and all of that. And she is now she's she's but she's still she didn't quit her job. She didn't start to train full time as an elite. And she's only, I think, 27 or 28 years old. So she technically hasn't reached her peak sort of running potential yet. Most female runners really peak in their late 20s, usually early to mid 30s is when you really run your fastest times like Des Linden I think is 35 years old Shalane Flanagan is in her 30s when she was mid 30s when she won New York that's really when there's science behind it I'm not going to pretend I fully understand science because I wasn't my best subject in school but I think it has something to do with like your body fat and your muscle and your body actually being in it's like prime baby making sort of time oh really yeah that they say that that's when women peak is they peak in their like 
in their 30s is the best time for you to be a distance runner. You're also smarter. You understand how to race a little bit better. So she did. She ran a personal best. She ran a personal record, a PR um, of 236 in New York. She's already qualified for the Olympic trials for Tokyo, so she'll do that. But the amazing thing is that she's doing all of this and working a full-time job, and she's running 110 miles a week. It's and unbelievable. Have much time to hang around. And I'm so glad we finally ended on like a happy note. I know. I feel like nice. we always talk about really depressing stuff when I'm here. <laughs> Thank you, Trini. We'll try to we'll try to be more upbeat. In yes. The Next week, I'll try to find some like happy stories. <laughs> okay. Trini, Chris, have fun in California. Thank you. Super jolly. Thank you. Uh, yeah. No more snow for me. Uh, Trini Krasnerik joined. I'm coming back. By the way, I'm not moving there. Okay. Uh, she's an anchor and reporter for NBC Sports Boston and a BPR contributor. Uh, coming up, the ACLU has found, have they found, a chink in President Trump's border wall plans? Carol Rose joins us for that and more. She's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. President Trump announced at CPAC that he would make federal funding for universities contingent on support for free speech. It was a real crowd pleaser for his base, not so much with First Amendment experts. At noon, we'll talk to Carol Rose, the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts, about this and more. And when it comes to air travel, you don't have to check your taste buds at the gate anymore. Airports across the United States are investing in upscale eateries. Food writer Corby Kummer joins us for that and more. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Jim Browdy, we open up the lines and ask you, why does everyone lose their common sense and dignity when it comes to free food at the office? Are you the one who absconded with that communal tub of popcorn to guzzle down the remains? Then CNN's John King joins us to go over the latest political headlines. That's all next on Boston Public Radio. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy is out. Uh, I am Marjorie Egan. I'm here all the time, and I'm here again today. And, and Jared Bowen, executive editor, uh, uh, arts editor at WGBH, is here with us, too. Um, so over the weekend, the president made a controversial policy announcement at this year's Conservative Political Action Conference. Today I'm proud to announce that I will be very soon signing an executive order requiring colleges and universities to support free speech if they want federal research dollars. If they want our dollars and we give it to them by the billions, they've got to allow people like Hayden and many other great young people and old people to speak free speech. Uh, that was, uh, on the surface, sounding like the president defending free speech, but he's actually raising serious First Amendment concerns, particularly with the government being the arbiter of what free speech is. So here with us to talk about this and other headlines is Carol Rose. She's the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. Thanks so much, Carol. Good to see you. Great. It's great to be As here, Marjorie. Jared. Before we get to the president uh, and this whole free speech issue, I just wanted to ask you, 
um, about surveillance cameras. Jim is, is very, who's not here, so we always take advantage of his not being here to ask these questions. <laughs> um, is very opposed to these ideas of surveillance cameras on the streets. You know th that are popping up more and more. And I'm not sure. I think I, I'm not sure where the ACLU is on this, and that's why I wanted to ask you because we've had two very horrible cases of abductions here. There was a um, young woman that was abducted coming out of a, a bar uh, late at night. Uh, they found the guy that abducted her uh, and charged him and burst into his apartment, actually, uh, when she was walking with him down Congress Street um, and also a ping from her cell phone helped the police locate this guy in his Charlestown apartment. And she, thank goodness, was was uh, rescued and uh, still alive, uh, attacked but still alive. And this other horrible, horrible case of a young uh, mother in Boston, uh, uh, Jesse Correa, uh, who was killed allegedly by this Lewis Coleman. Same thing that uh, surveillance videos um, showed her with different people when she was going down Tremont Street about 2 o'clock in the morning the alleged killer approached her and they saw the two of them talking and she wound up getting into a car with him. And later, footage, uh, video footage from his apartment complex in Providence uh, showed him coming into the parking lot. So I think the average person is looking at these things and saying these surveillance videos right. probably saved the life of this woman in Charlestown. It didn't save the life, tragically, but at least got the killer. So where is the ACLU on these surveillance right. cameras? So, I mean, surveillance, it's important to understand what is and isn't allowed in surveillance. I don't think that the ACLU's never been a purist that says there can be no surveillance cameras, right? What we're looking for are checks and balances by the government, and in both of these instances, uh, the government would be able to get a warrant, a probable cause warrant, or be able to get one after the fact if you're in an escape situation, right? Uh, in ex exigent circumstances, as they yeah. say in the law. And so I think part of what we're looking at is when you have unfettered surveillance cameras. It could be used for virtually any reason, you know, to track your ex-girlfriend or to, you know, blackmail your political opponent or whatever could happen. Uh, and the you mean as an individual with a surveillance camera? Right. It's, it's, it's the abuse of the surveillance cameras that are the problem. So what we're looking for is really to have a conversation about community control over police surveillance or CCOMS. And in a number of uh, cities and towns around Massachusetts, we've been pushing for this. And what it would do is to put a check to say, when government, when law enforcement in particular, obtain surveillance camera uh, technology, we should have a public conversation about when can they and can't they use it. And it's clearly in a circumstance of an escaped killer or a kidnapping or something like that, under any uh, warrant requirement, you'd be able to quickly and easily get a warrant or get it after the fact even. Uh, and so those are circumstances where I don't think there's a lot of dispute uh, yeah. about the use of surveillance. I think what the ACLU and other groups that care about civil rights and civil liberties are concerned about is when they're abused and used to track people who have, in fact, done nothing wrong. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Jared. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, and I'm not sure if you have this right up, off the top of your head, but are there restrictions as to how far and wide surveillance can be used? I, I feel like over the years I've watched this debate happen in various communities that mm -hmm. they do want to have input about how blanket the surveillance is in their right. community. So there was a case here in Massachusetts, the Augustine case, that was the first in the nation to actually talk about what should be some of the constraints for how much time, for example, of cell phone pinging. Like, you don't want to be able to just have the government track everybody, all of us who carry our cell phones around, without any reason. Uh, and so there was a, a limit on that. And then that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court in another ACLU 
case last year called the Carpenter case that again said the police need to get a warrant to be able to track your cell phone tracking. So that's not a camera, that's a cell phone pinging and tracking. Um, and so what we're looking for is to make sure that we keep our system of checks and balances uh, here in Massachusetts and nationwide so that we are able to get the benefits of technology but to mitigate against some of the worst threats to liberty, uh, free speech, uh, blackmail, abuse of power that can come if these are unfettered technologies. But I just want to be clear, in the Boston situation, have you had these conversations? I mean, are we, are the surveillance cameras that are apparently all around us on, on city streets in Boston, are they... Uh, fine with the way they are, or is it there well, need to some, be? I think no. I think there need to be regulations on all of them. I mean, it's one thing if you say a bank has put up a surveillance camera at the ATM machine, right? That kind of right. makes some sense, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that can, but there's no reason to retain it if there isn't any uh, danger, right, okay. or any any criminal in, uh, problem that's taking place. So you can uh, film over it over and over again. There's certain mitigations you can take to prevent against abuse. Um, I think the biggest threat right now, and what we have pushed for in this new legislature, is some sort of a moratorium on face recognition technology. And that's really scary stuff. Because whereas we would argue that it's hard to imagine that you, anybody could leave home without their cell phone, right, and so you don't want to have your cell phone become a tracking device for the government to track your location you really can't leave your face at home, right? It's even more sort of potentially dystopian. And the problem now is that we simply don't have any regulations. It's just a wild, wild west or wild, wild east since we're in Boston uh, about the surveillance technology. So what the ACLU is pushing for is a public conversation okay. around, you know, when we have situations like the two murders and the, or the murder and the kidnapping you were talking about, there may be important times that we have surveillance cameras available or access to surveillance cameras. But in a lot of circumstances, we need to have some kind of a restriction so that they're not used by local law enforcement or state police to track people who have not broken any law, who have, you have no reason to. And that should, for police officers who care about upholding the Constitution, they should be supportive of that as well. J just one last thing. I, I, I suppose with the problems the state police have had uh, with their overtime and fake, uh, uh, you know, claiming things that exactly. work they didn't do, they're not, their integrity is not in the best condition right now. But, I mean, do you have reason to believe that, uh, that the cops are using these like to go after their ex-girlfriend or something like that? You know, I d we don't, uh, we've just begun looking at this okay. and that's why we want to have a moratorium is to make sure that we take a look as a society. But does the moratorium mean we would not have been able to see this guy's face? No. Not okay. at all. No, okay. because so you would always have an ability to get a warrant okay. to track somebody. So that's that's in the criminal legal system, and that's okay. always going to be upheld in, in these kind of murder or kidnapping situations. Um, so what we're talking about is preventing the abuse of that in circumstances where there is no criminal conduct taking place. We are speaking with Carol Rose of the Massachusetts ACLU. Uh, we've talked a lot about abortion rights with you as well, yeah. which there's a lot of concern in this country that they are imperiled, especially with Justice Kavanaugh now on the Supreme Court. There seems to be a lot of fast action happening. There sure is. I mean, tell us what's happening on the state level, but particularly here in Massachusetts, where one might not expect that, that it would be such a threat, but Harriet Chandler ha has Absolutely. tried to ensure these rights. Yeah, so first of all, this is the first week of Women's Month, so I mean, it's important that we talk about uh, and reflect upon this sort of struggle that we've had for gender equality in this country and how important it's been to have the legal protection for a woman and her family to choose when they want to start a family. Uh, when it's, it's an economic decision, it's a medical decision, it's a very private decision, and it's something that should be reserved for families and women and their physicians and not actually a power that the, the, the government should take away. But 
The Trump administration, and in many states, um, there's now more than 400 uh, attempts in, across the country in state legislatures to put in regulations that would actually prevent women from getting access to abortion by saying that doctors have to be registered in a nearby medical hospital, even though there's no reason to think that the, the, the legal abortion is anything but terribly safe, um, uh, and putting up a whole and, and uh, financial barriers. Uh, to women being able to access abortion. So uh, together with the Choice Coalition, the ACLU, uh, NARAL Massachusetts, and Planned Parenthood are pushing and working with Senator Chandler um, and also uh, Representative Pat, uh, Pat Haddad and Jay Livingstone uh, in the House side to put forward uh, this new act we're calling the Roe Act, R-O-E. Uh, and it's an act to remove obstacles and to expand abortion access. The real intent here is to make sure that Massachusetts is really a beacon uh, for people who want to access legal and safe medical abortion, uh, that they're able to come to Massachusetts and do that and to take down the barriers, uh, especially as they're going up in so many other states. So the ACLU is challenging it in other states, but here in Massachusetts, we're working in coalition in the legislature with Senator Chandler uh, and Rep. Haddad and Livingstone to actually pass this. And um, you know, our, our view is that a woman's health really should guide important medical decisions throughout her pregnancy. Not politicians. Uh, they shouldn't. Politicians should have no say. Uh, and it's really important that pregnancy decisions be left to a woman in consultation with her health care provider. And again, not with politicians. You know, if you uh, listen to Fox News or you hear some of the president's speeches about this or you hear a lot of Republicans talking about this, they're turning this into an infanticide mm -hmm. and uh, because the bill would allow abortions after 24 weeks, but this is only in cases of very serious fetal abnormalities or the risk or health of the life of the mother. But right here in Massachusetts, you have the opponents of this uh, calling it this one from the Massachusetts Republican Assembly. Mary Lou Daxlin told the Globe, uh, Worcester Telegram, excuse me, she called this legally uh, legalized infanticide and immoral and justifiable. And uh, this woman from the Massachusetts uh, um, Citizens for Life said this was allowed the destruction of newborns who survive an abortion. So straighten people out on that because that has become the clarion call from mm -hmm. the opposition that this is killing babies on right. the delivery table. Well, so I mean, I think it's really important to understand that by expanding access to abortion after 24 weeks, it would only been in instances of fetal abnormalities, right? So the, the chances of the fetus or the baby, if it ultimately goes to term, being able to survive on its own are, are virtually nil. So I think it's important that people recognize this is about uh, being kind to the women and protecting the lives of the women. Uh, the, the grief that these women have to confront already uh, facing a having a pregnancy that's not normal, that has issues, medical issues. That's a deeply personal issue. And I think that people um, can agree to disagree about what they would choose to do in those moments, but the notion that the government should come in and should have a say in what is really a health care decision and an economic decision uh, for women and for their families, these are hard decisions for families to make, but it's really not for the government to intervene and to come in and to interfere yeah. in such a fundamental decision for families and often a very difficult decision. Do you see these opposition groups uh, gaining ground now that there is a debate that they that, that hasn't really existed in this country for, sure. for some time? Oh, absolutely. And I think what we're talking about here in Massachusetts and in other places uh, where there's a history of upholding a women's uh, you know, ability to make these private health care decisions is that it's going to be shut down in a lot of other states, potentially. And arguably, even having Roe v. Wade taken away, it would, we go back to the bad old days of women having to travel long distances or to have self-induced or, or dangerous medical abortions. Because they will, in fact, get abortions. It'll just be terribly dangerous. Uh, and so we don't want to go back to those bad old days, but we want to make sure that Massachusetts is, if you would, a blue beacon 
uh, a place that where women's reproductive health will be uh, upheld and defended uh, regardless of what happens across the country. Well, let's get back to where we started. We're speaking with Carol Rose from the ACLU. We played a clip earlier of President Trump uh, talking about issuing an executive order very soon, making colleges oh, and universities silly. to support uh, free speech. Uh, uh, during his speech, the president brought on stage this uh, person, this Hayden Williams, who apparently was punched when he was at the University of California, uh, supporting conservative causes and criticizing uh, um, Jesse Smollett and the guy that claimed mm -hmm. he was beaten up uh, when apparently he doesn't look like he, he looks like he set it up, and uh, all that kind of thing. So, where do you, what's your take on the president's efforts? <laughs> the hypocrisy is just mind-boggling, to be honest with you. I mean, there's no question that we need to defend free speech on campus. And by the way, hitting someone is not speech; that's assault and battery. Correct. Um, you know, so there's just no question. And the ACLU has long been on the forefront of promoting freedom of speech on college campuses, at, while also balancing that with having a, a right to have a learning environment that's conducive to everyone learning. But the hypocrisy is amazing coming from, you know, Donald Trump as the real instigator in chief. I mean, he's mocked the First Amendment's right to freedom of religion when he called for the Muslim, uh, Muslim ban. He's endorsed attacking protesters and members of the news media. He's called for the imprisonment of people who burn the flag in protest or dissent. Uh, you know, he he's calls reporters the enemy of the people. Um, so the notion that he would then turn around and say that he is going to dictate what speech is free on college campuses, I think it really goes to the heart of why it's so important as a principled matter to uphold freedom of speech from government intrusion because you just don't know who, who gets to decide which speech is appropriate or not. If it's Donald Trump deciding, that's really scary. Right. Well, and you didn't even mention the, the climate change, his own administration not allowing certain language to be used around oh, God. the right. of climate right. change. Exactly. Well, you know exactly, what one of, the, one of the problems here, and I, and I have sympathy with some of these colleges, um, we've seen these stories where someone that's very controversial, uh, usually it's someone who's very conservative or right-winger, wants to come to a, a college, and colleges tend to be full of young people, more liberal. And the, the you-know-what hits the fan, mm -hmm. and the college gets stuck with these enormous security bills right. to make sure that no one, you know, that things don't turn into a melee at the, at the situation, right. that bad situation. I believe it was at Middlebury, wasn't it? Middlebury, where the yeah. uh, where the speaker yes. and the uh, faculty member they, they were. They wanted to disinvite them. Yes, and I, well, I, think I think there's they were different standards. Yeah. I think there's different standards that go in. I mean, you, I think it's appropriate and fine for a college to say, we're going to have certain standards before someone is invited. But I think once somebody's invited, the notion of disinviting them, you have yeah. to set perhaps a different set of standards. But the, the point of, of a university education is to expose people to new and different ideas, right? And so I think it's important that we have that. And at the same time, there's academic freedom, and they don't have to invite everybody who wants to speak. Right. Um, but I think it's, you know, if we were to think about out at University of California, Berkeley, which is where this incident took place, I mean, that was the center of the free speech movement in the 1960s. <laughs> Excellent point. With Stokely Carmichael, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it's not clear that he would be allowed to speak on college campuses today, right? But I, I think the most important thing is to recognize that there's a, a wonderful and rich debate to be had about how do we balance the right to be able to get an education uh, which, when we understand that words are powerful and have an impact and we want to have a learning environment and at the same time promote free speech. But the notion that Donald Trump is going to be the arbiter of what is and isn't acceptable speech is laughable if it weren't actually frightening. Maybe we all, everyone needs to get a big speech at the beginning of the college year that we can, you know, we need not to get engaged in uh, violent uh, 
attacks if we have a controversial speaker. It doesn't seem, because it, I, I, I it was Charles Murray, I think, that spoke at Middlebury, and he said some right. very controversial things about race, mm -hmm. uh, but he's a longtime uh, writer. He's written a bunch of books. I guess you don't like to see people attacking anybody. You know, well, I it's think it's fine to say that we don't want to, you know, that we as a university, as a matter of academic freedom, don't want to invite certain people to come because we don't like what they have yeah. to say, right? right? I think that's fine. But once, for whatever reason, somebody gets invited, I think disinviting them because other people protest is sort of problematic. But these are, again, conversations that um, how do we draw the line because we want to make a learning environment so people can actually hear the words because words have power. So balancing that I think is really uh, one of the more interesting things that, that we work on at the ACLU. Well, yeah, and the understanding that you want to be as informed as possible. I'm not, right. not treading into the territory of hate speech, territory of hate speech I mean, but, but yeah, you, you need different points of view. This yeah. is what college is about. Well, sometimes I think there's a little, there's not as much tolerance as there should be right. for different points of right. view. I guess that's what point I was making with the Charles Murray thing. I don't right. think I don't think well, either I think, side came out well on that one. And I think things have changed. Just to, to linger on this for a moment, I think there's a generational divide. I mean, for my generation, you know, it was Stokely Carmichael and the free speech and anti-war speech and the civil rights movement and and Martin Luther King Jr. wanting to be able to speak freely, right? So that was where a lot of the free speech uh, law was first developed. But for my kids' generation, for this new generation of, of millennials, if you would, um, you know, they grew up with the internet and cyberbullying and a lot of curriculum around inclusivity and belonging and good things like that. So I think we're seeing a generational divide, and I'm hopeful that if we are talking to one another across those generations, we'll be able to come up with a way that is the third way and the, and the moderate way. But having Donald Trump uh, make a suggestion that he's the person who gets to decide what is and isn't free speech is one of the best lessons that we can teach people about why it's important not to let the government dictate. Okay, we're talking to Carol Rose from the ACLU of Massachusetts. You have sued uh, 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 for border wall contracts. What's going on? <laughs> well, we actually have two lawsuits. Um, so as everybody knows, the President Donald Trump uh, is uh, declaring an emergency so he can try to get money uh, from other from the military, actually, uh, to try to build his border wall. So two things that we've done. At the national level, the ACLU uh, filed a lawsuit actually representing the Sierra Club and other environmental groups uh, and basically said that, among other things, trying to build this border wall would, uh, is going to harm wildlands and, uh, and habitat and take away people's property rights. And have, Which is, you know, that, that's the part that kills me. Aren't there people, like 5,000 people on the Texas border yes. may, may lose their homes to eminent domain? Right, so people, it's, I mean, it's a taking from property. Think about that. If you've been right. living on the Rio Grande, it's not bad to live in the water, you know? I mean, no, even exactly if you do right. have a few incidents with people coming over the border, I mean, think about that. This woman that was interviewed on television, she was out there fishing with her grandchildren. Right. She had lived here for 30 years, and, and she stands to lose her her home. land, and right. she's not going to get another place That's right. on the water. Don't we all no, want places no. on, on the water? water. <laughs> and I mean, so you'll see the people on the border, you know, aren't, aren't calling for this. And so we, so I'm really proud that ACLU has um, uh, partnered up with these environmental groups as a way to challenge it. In, in addition, from the constitutional perspective, uh, throwing some of the environmental regulatory ways to try to slow it down. Uh, and then locally, we did a suit here. Uh, so uh, Donald Trump went on Twitter and said that he had a contract. Uh, that he was going to build 115 miles of the border wall. So one of our attorneys on staff said, oh, I want to see the contract, and, and issued a public records request to see the contract. And, uh, you know, the government responded and said, we can not locate any such contract. And so, <laughs> we, you know, we, can, we won't be responsive to you for this contract. So we went in, and it was actually quite... Uh, hilarious that the judge sort of was angry and said, well, we all know that just because our president has said that there's a contract, that doesn't make it so effectively uh, suggesting that we all can understand that 
our president doesn't tell the truth. So that's remarkable. Yeah, well, he, I mean, his, his record has not been that great along those lines, I guess, has it? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? We have this, uh, we're going to have a vote probably in the Senate that, that we have Rand Paul now, a libertarian. Yeah. He's going to decide, siding with Susan Consley, Murkowski, uh, I think it's Tom Tillis from North Carolina, and saying right. he doesn't want to support money for this border wall. So we'll have the House saying no money for the border wall. We'll have the Senate saying no we, money for the border wall. Right, and then we presume that the president is going to veto yeah. uh, that. So uh, you're a lawyer, you're with the ACLU. You, what, do you, what do you predict is going to ultimately happen here? Well, I think ultimately um, the whole, you know, hopefully the whole thing is going to be so bollocked up that nothing's actually going to happen and we'll see Wall what happens wise. in the 2020 election. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think there's enough groups between the state's uh, attorneys general, groups like the ACLU and the Sierra Club, and then Congress slowing it down. Um, I, I think the president is wounding himself over and over again, you know, what they say, punching themselves in the face. Um, but I think he sees. I think this is just a political move. I just think he's trying to whip up his base. Well, eminent domain um, takes a long time, doesn't it? You just can't take somebody's house in six right. months. That's what I'm saying. This is this is going to be a long time. Yeah. Um, so they will go to court. They'll fight for their property. Right. Uh, but it's an interesting challenge because I do think that what, what we're seeing here, both with the U.S. Supreme Court, with even with the Roberts Court, and we're seeing it, I think now even in the Republican-controlled Senate, is the institutions are recognizing that this is a president who's trying to dismantle the institutions of democracy, take away the checks and balances by having unfettered executive power. And so I think what we're seeing are the people on, on, from both political parties putting their institutional concerns. They don't want to have a king. That's why we have separations of power. So I think we see John Roberts invoking precedent, unlike Clarence Thomas, to yeah. try to uphold the institution of the court itself against his ideological views, uh, which may make him over overturn precedent and things like Roe v. Wade. And similarly in Congress, we're seeing the Republicans in the Senate recognizing that if they were to go forward and to say that the president can have unfettered executive branch authority, that can be used by future presidents to declare emergency to do other things. Well, okay. I had, well, never mind. Well, we'll move, move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, th this is a local story about a, a disaster situation that happened Ugh. here in Massachusetts where you had not one but two people that worked in drug labs cooking the right. books and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, falsifying results. And the cooking themselves. Yeah, co mm -hmm. cooking, cooking themselves. Yeah, Indeed. I guess the story says that this one woman, this Sonia Farrick, was um, using drugs from the first day she started at the lab there, which yes. is really something. But in any case, as everybody knows, uh, it's very difficult to do anything uh, if you have a conviction for uh, uh, taking drugs, whether it's trying to get a job or uh, your immigration status or volunteering at your kid's school. So what's the ACLU doing? So the ACLU has done a couple of things, and I think it's really important that people know if they might have been uh, one of the victims of this were 47,000 drug charges that we had dismissed uh, that the ACLU of Massachusetts brought, both in the Andy Dukan and then the Sonia Farrick case, which was out in western Massachusetts. And the Supreme Judicial Court ruled, in fact, that these cases had to be vacated. Um, and so even though we can't get the people their liberty back, almost all of them have already served whatever time they were going to serve. As you say, Marjorie, the collateral consequences of having a conviction from being able to not get a house, not get a job, et cetera, are huge. So we're urging people to step forward now and to say that they can, if they think they might have been a victim of either the Sonia Fair or the Annie Dukan drug lab scandals, they should call, may I give the number to your listeners? Absolutely. Okay, it's the uh, Public Defender Drug Lab Hotline at one 888 that's 888-999-2881. 
Uh, and, we're, and what's really important to understand is that the state attorney general's office is paying for this outreach program in part because that office, uh, uh, under the previous attorney general, uh, actually covered up the fact that Sonia Farrick had been doing drugs for so long. Uh, and as a result, almost, uh, well, what the judge said was committed fraud upon the court and almost meant that these people wouldn't, in fact, get their cases vacated. But fortunately, they are vacated. We now have this hotline that's set up, and people can come forward and hopefully restore a semblance of the justice that they were denied. Well, spell out what some of that restoration should be. I mean, what are the consequences? You mentioned already that people have served their time, but, but how does a, a conviction like this linger beyond just one serving time? Right. Well, it lingers that you, you, know, you can't often get public housing. You can't often get a job. Um, if you're picked up for something else, uh, there might be, it might be used against you to lengthen your sentence on a subsequent uh, arrest or crime. And especially when you're thinking about people who have substance use disorder, and many of many people relapse, right? Because it's not just a straight line from. Uh, being unwell to being healthy. Uh, it's a, a re, uh, many people fall back. And so we want to make sure that people have the best chance they can to restore their lives, to become productive members of our community as they deserve to be, and many of them are ready to be, uh, without having these uh, wrongful convictions hanging over their heads. Carol, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, As guys. always, great, great to see you. Good it's luck always with good your, to see you. With your various suits. Keep busy over there at the <laughs> see ACLU. You in, see you in court. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I see your, your, people at home can't see you, obviously, but it looks like you're wearing... Is it it's a Constitution scarf. Yeah, your scarf is great. Well, I see there we, the we go. As you let we it flow, the people. I say, we the people flow at the bottom. <laughs> exactly. Thank, thank you very you. much, Carol. Great to see you. Thanks. Great to see you both. Bye-bye. Carol Rose is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. She joins us every month. Coming up, fast food is on the fast track to becoming even more unhealthy, with portions getting larger and fat and sodium content spiking. Food writer Corby Cummer joins us for that and more. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Brown. He's got the day off. And joining us to go over the latest headlines at the intersection of food policy and food culture is Corby Cummer. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic, an award-winning food writer, and a senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. Hello, Corby Cummer. Hello, Marjorie and Jared. We got, we got a lot of great stories today. Okay, here's the first one. <laughs> Poor people at Starbucks. And, and now, I must say, I'm a big fan of Hamilton. <laughs> I love the music from Hamilton. But apparently, the poor people at Starbucks are being driven insane by a constant round of <laughs> Hamilton playing on the, yeah, over their uh, music system there. And uh, they're saying it's a workers' right issue and get rid of... I mean, how can they not like Hamilton? I'm not going to give up my... If you're still singing that as you are right now, three hours from now, which is what they do, then you might not like it so much. You know what I can't get out of my head? That damn shadow song from the from the Academy Awards. Oh, I Bradley Cooper nuzzling into the neck of Lady Gaga. In the shallow, shallow. I don't. I can't sing. So, but it's like running in my head. The internet went crazy over that and said every single person wanted to form a threesome with exactly two people. Exactly. That was It was pretty intense. It was on mainstream media. But that's the thing. These are called earwigs. They won't get out of your head. I have one that's been lodged firmly for two months. What's yours? Um, oh, I, 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 I won't even say. It's a Cantor and Ebb song. They wrote Cabaret and many other musicals. Oh, okay. And it's from, um, 
from a cutout, a, ser- a series of cutouts, but it, uh, songs, but it's incredibly catchy. So when things are really catchy, like I am not going to give up my shot from yep. Hamilton, they stick around in our heads. Can you imagine being subjected to that hour after hour? No, you can't. It would be torment. But we all know exactly what the feeling is. It's walking into a mall, store, supermarket, or train station in December. I and know, hearing that's what the I was thinking, same yes. Christmas music and feeling as the Starbucks worker did about Hamilton, I'm getting up on a ladder and ripping out the speakers. <laughs> Well, well they, they, they did uh, point out that this is the same kind of punishment used at Guantanamo. Yeah, Guantanamo. It's blasting music. <laughs> of course. Yes. Whenever we read about Abu Ghraib and yeah. Torment, it is playing loud music. Now, in that case, it was loud music that would be completely against all of the prisoners' uh, cultural preferences, but it was loud and nonstop and repeated. And even if it's soft and ambient, if it's the same music all the time in Starbucks, imagine how you would feel. Terrible. It's invasive. You can't tune it out. So I am with them, and it should come off. Do you okay. know? Do you know mine right now? If anybody's watching that that show Russian Doll on Netflix. Oh yes. And it's the same song. So she she dies repeatedly and wakes up, and it's the same song every time. And now that song has been. I won't. I'll do the same thing. I'll spare our listeners by not repeating what the song is. But now. Oh come on! What's the song? <laughs> I want to know. Say, Never gonna get. You know, I'm not gonna do it. Oh, you, well, you have to watch I'm the show. I'm gonna have to watch Russian Doll now and yep. and, and, and check it out. It, yeah, it, we're it's warned like against it. It's like a Groundhog Day. Yes, thing exactly. Keeps yep. living her life yep. over and over Same again. Song. So, should we boycott Starbucks? Or what should we be doing here, Corby? No, we should say that any place that plays repetitive music on the track should vary it. Ask their workers for input into it and keep it at a very soft volume so that Starbucks can continue to be the third place. It says it is where you can work and have meetings without being disturbed by cult music like Hamilton. This is the first, by the way, the first anything like Hamilton backlash I've ever seen. Exactly. I know. In I the mean, utter adulation exactly. for Hamilton. Exactly. Especially when they, they had the King George uh, song when he talks about how he's Based on British to... rock and That's incredibly right. catchy. Imagine hearing that once an hour. You'll be back. <laughs> yes. That's See, right. we remember it. That's right. Catch I have it too. To kill your friends and family to prove my love, <laughs> you little colonists, and your uprising there. I do like the Hamilton music, obviously. Of course, it's okay. irresistible, okay. but not if you have to be subjected to it every hour. So, fast food, Corby Cummer, we know it's fattening. Apparently, it's more fattening now. <laughs> this is wild, and it reminds you that you have to keep an eye on the ball. When industry, like McDonald's, will talk about their cage-free eggs, and indeed, they've changed animal rights across the country by changing standards. Farms change. They're incredibly mighty. But what they're doing at the same time is increasing the amount of fat and sodium and size of portions in their meals uh, because they can charge for double the portion. They can, change the same, they can charge the same amount of money for incredibly fattening food. And so uh, this is a really disturbing study done It was the leading story on the New York Times website last night. Uh, And what is it? It's done by uh, Boston University and a Tufts Friedman School of (laughs) Nutrition. Um, Universer, researcher Susan B. Roberts, who's very good on diets, and um, several authors at Boston University. Uh, What did they do? They surveyed the portion size and the amount of fat and sodium in lots and lots of fast food offerings over the past 30 years. In fact, 1,787 entree sides and desserts at 10 change 
uh, 10 chains from 86 to 16. And, and this is incredible uh, what they see, that um, obesity you know, during the same period has risen to 40% from 13%. But they find the average entree has uh, more than doubled from 39 grams to 90. Uh, it had more 90 Wait. more calories, 41.6% of the recommended daily allotment of sodium. I would say sodium is the most important disturbing part of this entire story because they've so much raised the levels of sodium. Let me be clear. Are we talking about their food in general or only if you are oversold or supersized, as they always, always try to do to you? No, they've taken the individual entree, side, and drink portions. And desserts, desserts. have gone way up. It's, it's why in 2016, the average fast food dessert weighed an extra 71 grams and had 186 more calories than 30 years early. 186 more calories. And, of course, if you talk to our favorite, beloved Joanne Chang from Flower Bakery, who talks about having to change out all of the muffin tins in her bakeries at the beginning because she tried to um, sell sane portions of cupcakes. And her customers said, hey, this isn't a cupcake. (laughs) Because now people are used to cupcakes three times the size of what they were in the 70s, say, or 80s. Listen to this. McDonald's just introduced something called donut sticks, dusted with cinnamon sugar, six sticks. 280 calories? Have you, have you sampled those? The problem carbon? is that's not bad, 280 calories, but, and there's a big but, mm-hmm. uh, for um, about the same amount of money, you get 12. <laughs> so, of course, you would do that, and there's 600 calories of the 2,300, say, you're supposed to eat a day. Yeah, we, we didn't get to talk about this uh, with Trenny Kuznarek before about the, the North Dakota football oh, team that yeah. went again to the White House, and it was just this huge array oh. of, of fast food. But I was thinking, Painful it's sight. not like they've got, like you're at a real McDonald's where they've got the heat lamps, right? So you're going to be, all these football <laughs> players are going to be eating kind right. of lukewarm French fries, you know what I mean? It's, I, you know, if you're going to eat at McDonald's, you want the food hot, don't you? Why on earth? You don't want yeah. the food at all, really. Yeah. Why would you serve athletes fast food? I don't know. Oh, I mean, it's because it's what they wanted. It was unlimited amounts, and this was like a big TV show and playing to his base and saying, I'm a real American just like everybody else. I like fast food. What about this? the heck with this fancy highfalutin food at the White House? This is what my people really want, and I'm giving it to them. The White House chef is just watching Russian Doll on Netflix now because he, he or she has nothing else to do now. <laughs> I guess. Well, his excuse the first time was the, uh, the, the, the shutdown, the government shutdown, right. so they wouldn't have to have the White House chefs come out and cook something. But, boy, I would think if you went to the White House, you'd want to have some, you know, some fancy White House food, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want Oh, the, there's Burger no King. excuse for it. It's just a photo op. And you noticed it was him gesturing to these huge tables laden with <laughs> endless amounts of fast food, like, welcome to my kingdom. <laughs> So, uh, Corby Kummer, uh, we know that Amazon has now taken over and bought Whole Foods, uh, but now they're expanding to many more stores. So what's not quite reported in the Wall Street Journal and CNN stories about this push that uh, Amazon has announced in the next few years it is going to open dozens of its own grocery stores separately branded from Whole Foods with big (coughs) brand names that (laughs) have plenty of sweeteners. Whole Foods doesn't sell products with artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. Well, 
the heck with that. Now we're going to sell Coke. <laughs> we're going to sell things that are at, that a lot of consumers want, but also allows them to tap into the co-op budgets of big food manufacturers, which will allow them to advertise and get into the public consciousness um, and charges Amazon a small amount of the copay. And there aren't, there's not that same access to huge advertising budgets if you're at Whole Foods because the smaller companies don't have those ad budgets. Um, but the main story that isn't so much reported is the big rivalry right now in groceries is between Walmart and Amazon. Walmart has very successfully taken on Amazon trying to do same-day delivery, uh, meal kits, uh, and this is a much quieter story than is reported because Amazon very loudly announced it was going to offer meal kits when it uh, bought Whole Foods and said we're going to uh, make them available for pickup at our Whole Foods locations. It was the worst timing in the world for Blue Apron, which had timed its public offering to that week, having oh, no idea no. that Amazon would make this cataclysmic announcement. And therefore, it tanked. It was just it spelled disaster for Blue Apron. But what's just quietly not being reported is Walmart is doing all of this. Amazon knows it and wants to go head to head with Walmart on its own territory. And even though uh, the CNN story, uh, which was taken from the Wall Street Journal, reported that each store is going to cost nine million dollars. This doesn't make Amazon blink because, as anyone who studies Amazon knows, they will swallow losses for years because they play the long game. They want to get into bricks-and-mortar groceries. They've wanted to crack groceries for years. Um, that's part of the reason they bought Whole Foods. But they want to go against Kroger, the big chains, and Walmart, and it's going to be very interesting to watch. Is it true that there are pretty slim profit margins in supermarkets? The slimmest. Oh, yeah, they're terrible. Really? Uh, they've always been terrible. They're like um, 1% to 2%. They're, 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 they're amazingly slim. So where does the markup come? Because you're paying like you know, $4 for a you know, bunch of cereals that aren't really, I don't think it doesn't cost $4 to the make them and ship them. The markup comes from advertising, from the oh. rent, from the help, from the shipping. Uh, and and the, the, cut, the, the competition is cutthroat. We, we read a lot about this in the whole market basket. Um, right. That's a labor right. Yeah. dispute and how any place that's trying to offer value is really challenged because the margins are so thin in the first place. So, so is Amazon expected to win, prevail ultimately against Walmart? Because Walmart, I think, isn't Walmart one of the biggest employers in the country or something? Oh, it? no, it's fascinating. Um, Walmart controls grocery uh, at 21%. Amazon and Whole Foods together are 4%. I don't wow. have in front of me the amount of Kroger and Safeway. But it is pretty cutthroat. And they both have pretty unlimited resources. Um, they're family-owned. They can do what they want. And I think it's going to be the, like the most interesting battle in a long time. Uh, but it's really between Walmart and Amazon. Right, we are talking with food writer Corby Cummer. Uh, going back to nutrition as it served in prisons. Oh, I mean, gosh. you read these stories sometimes, it's and just absolutely revolting to read about maggot filled food. And, 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 you know, in some places, what was it, Sheriff Arpaio bragged about spending 15 cents, yeah. is it, per meal uh, for, for prisoners? Um, well, it's shocking what prisoners are served, and a very good reporter, Madison Pauley for Mother Jones, has been following this for a long time. And sadly, they put a clickbait, misleading title on this, the surprising 
benefits of serving prisoners better food. It's potential benefits because very few places are serving prisoners better food. But what the article in Mother Jones really details is how inhumane and terrible the food is where uh, prisoners comparing notes through the air vents about the 21 green beans they got, no, the 23 peas and the eight green beans that they got today and hoping that they're going to get some green beans. The refusal of many prisons to provide fresh fruit, not only because of the expense, but because prisoners can ferment them (laughs) into alcohol uh, and and going to the commissaries, which is to say they can spend money in vending machines and they make... Uh, dips and spreads with nachos and and uh, cheese dip to try to get anything with a, a taste of hot pepper and salt and add flavor to the flavorless food. But it's unhealthy. Uh, and there's terrible obesity. Uh, there's terrible obesity and there's terrible chronic illness, um, which is related to food. And which, um, of course, the government is paying to treat. Yeah, of course. I mean, but that's the whole story of bad food. The government we wind up paying the cost for diabetes and all this bad food that the fast food industry is getting to charge no money for and you pump this food into people. Uh, To me, the most heartbreaking part of this Mother Jones piece about prison food was um, in February, prison officials in Washington State ended a nearly 1,700-person food strike at medium-security prisons by agreeing to replace sugary breakfast muffins with hard-boiled eggs. Because this is how health-oriented and mistreated prisoners know they are. They wanted some decent, healthful food. Yeah, the, the stories about what goes on in the prisons of the United States, I have a, I, the, the fact that the U.S. Bureau of Prisons makes it so difficult for people, even politicians, even governors, senators, Congress people to go in and see what goes on in these prisons is really a disgrace. I don't know what, how they get away with it, but they... Uh, but one of the good unreported stories, if I can interrupt, is uh, one of my students wrote about... Concord's jail. It's a local jail, but they have a garden prisoners can um, both garden and actually eat the food from and uh, have a farmer's market. Bay Area has been instituting these uh, prison gardens. So, you know, there, there are rays of hope from local activists who try to improve things with, with gardens, for example. Excellent. We're talking with Corby Kummer, our food man. So things are improving in the airports of America, including, I guess, at Logan Airport. We have more choices. We don't have to go eat out of the vending machines or one of those <laughs> freezing cold chicken salad sandwiches that, you know, <laughs> there's a little ice on the cubes of chicken. <laughs> well, can I say not much? They're improving oh, not a little. Much? Okay. And they're improving where? At San Francisco Airport. Oh, no. You know, it's the food capital of the country. So... Uh, Tartine Manufactory, which is a place that some of us who are obsessed with bread have the um, super shuttle or lift head to as soon as we get out of SFO because it's got fabulous bread. Well, now right in the international terminal, you can go and have the Tartine bread. But this is a trend nationally. Uh, Just as schools compete to have the best, most healthful offerings uh, to an almost comical degree for students, Um, airports are starting to differentiate themselves. It's a huge challenge for airports because the food deliveries have to be regular. Chefs can't change the daily menu at whim. The uh, chefs have to go in and be trained for security. Um, It raises food prices. Um, Also, one of the main points that was sort of subtly uh, put in this New York Times piece celebrating San Francisco is... Um, mostly these are big national food vending yeah. uh, chains that operate based on somebody's name. And, in fact, I was wined and dined about two years ago 
by one of these airport food service chains that wanted me to sweet talk local chefs into using lending their names to the airports. But um, Rick Bayless of Frontera Grill and Tortoise uh, Frontera at Chicago Airport, uh, who says rightly, um, my tombstone is going to read, he made good food at the airport <laughs> because Tortoise Frontera at O'Hare has a fanatic customers. He's done it by paying for his own employees to go twice a week to those locations to set standards. It's very hard for places that don't have that staff, don't have the money to keep up standards. And once they've sold their name, they've sold it forever. And it is a very difficult deal. And I walked away from this company that wanted to offer me untold riches for oh. consulting because I had no idea what the conditions would actually be like and I didn't want conflicts of interest. A man of, of principle. A well, man of principle. Go well, ahead. Well, why, can't, why can't it be a situation where essentially a restaurateur just opens their restaurant at the airport? Why does it have to be so removed? Well, because the bureaucracy of getting through yeah. the security personnel, the ordering procurement through the airport vendors, it's very hard. And, and Rick Bayless of Chicago managed to get his favorite local food vendors in. But as with school food, to get these local foods in, it takes jumping through a lot of bureaucratic hurdles and jumping over them in order to do it. So the, the piece in the time celebrates that San Francisco has done it with a fabulous Tartine Bakery, um, and maybe other places are going to start doing it too. Well, there was a piece in that Eater, that Eater Boston, that we, that we used to get a lot of stories for Corby Camarado that talked about, and this is a while ago, and I don't know if they've happened, but that was talking about Centarpio's Pizza, um, Kelly's Roast Beef, Castle, Sullivan's and Castellano, everybody goes to get the cheeseburgers and stuff, that they were supposedly going to be opening in, in uh, Terminal C. I think Kelly's might have been in Terminal B. I don't know if it's happened yet, but they were planning it, and they were saying exactly what you said, the big problem. Oh, and Boston Public Market was supposedly going to have a little branch in Terminal C, whether those have happened yet or not. I haven't been to Terminal C lately. But I do know when I tried to go and get a drink someplace um, in, in one of those terminals, you had to stand up and, like, you were five feet deep because there's so few bars. Lots of people that are nervous Well, bars. I have good news for you in Terminal E of Atlanta. One of the nation's best bars is called One Flew South. Really? And it is a perennial nominee for a James Beard Award for service, which is uh, very unusual because it is within a an airport. It is behind... Uh, security barriers, but it makes people feel at home and wanted. It has fabulous bar service. Oh. And so people stranded in Atlanta, if they're not in Terminal E, you have to go on a train between the terminals, they'll go to One Flew South. Um, it, so it's a great success story. But there are these places, and the Times piece didn't mention Austin, Texas, their airport, because they're incredibly hipster cool. Um, years ago, like five, seven years ago, had this taste of local Austin when you went in. They managed to say, this is part of our local brand. We want to promote it. We want local vendors. So I hope that Boston and Massport will do the same. So, Corby Kummer, <laughs> we're going to open up the phones in a few minutes and talk to our listeners about this. I thought this is one of the best stories I've read in I ages about people like. with free food. <laughs> and it's a tragedy because Jim Browdy, who's sort of uh, yeah. elevated yeah. stealing free food to an art. I mean, if he's not over at the hot bar at, uh, at, at Whole, Whole Foods, Foods, wherever he is, with a chair pulled up. Or Wegmans. Or, exactly. We used to tease him at the previous radio station where we used to, there were five radio stations there, and we would get a lot of free food. And there would be, if you know, say Wilson's Farms would come in with turkey 
and mashed potatoes and their delicious pies. It would be like a stampede. You can imagine five radio stations, all those employees fighting over the food, racing down the end of the hall. And Jim was always right there in the lead, uh, taking massive amounts of food. So, so lucky he isn't here today. Well, I told him. I told him he could tune <laughs> she in. She did. She texted him this morning. I said, if you want to tune in. But so, so what is this about free food? We'll get your psychoanalysis of this, uh, Corby Kummer, before we uh, open it up to the listeners. So he, it's good that you use the word tragedy because the economics, uh, the economist term is the tragedy of the commons, which I think Boston Common was one of the very first places. When you open up a cow pasture, as the Boston Common was, to everyone and say this is common land for the good of everyone, inevitably some people will hog all the grass and not care about the condition of it, use it all for the others. So the the piece in um, Slate, slate Slate.com, collected various emails from workers who would talk about the stampedes of people who within the first 10 minutes would go in (laughs) with big boxes and Tupperware containers and cardboard boxes and just load them up unapologetically. And one worker was talked to by management and said he didn't care. Other people would take entire aluminum pans of lasagna back to their desks. There's something irresistible about it. And I have to admit, every day, to going up to the Aspen Institute's common cafeteria and, and, and common cafe, as it's called, to see if the many, there's 30 different policy programs which often run its own programs which are catered. Now, afterward, uh, one of the slate letters was saying that people would hover around conference rooms <laughs> My favorite part, hoping yeah. that the people would come out and sort of looking yeah. like hungry jackals outside the room of the supposedly serious conference so that the office had to say, Someone will take this from office services to the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. You are not allowed to go into the room and feast like vultures on these leftovers. <laughs> so at the Aspen Institute, we're incredibly well-behaved and civil, and so we wait for it to go into the main kitchen. But I'm up there two or three times a day <laughs> because there is something irresistible about free food. Now, is the irresistibility that you're not having to pay for it or that you're not having to cook it or that... We're obsessed with food. And it's you're getting away with something. You're getting away with something. I, I think it's this, you're, it's this illicit thrill of I'm just, you know, I'm swiping candy from a baby. Yeah. I'm getting something for free. Of course, calories don't count if they're from somebody else's plate. There are all kinds of things that play into this. My excuse at the Aspen Institute is it's a part of Washington that isn't well served by any markets. It's well enough served. I could just go out and buy it for myself. But having it right there, having it right there, it's irresistible. Okay, Corby Kummer, just before you go, so you have, uh, you have overindulged in these free food situations. Would you like to tell us your, your naughty little secret right now? Um, you know, I, I did take several bananas from the. They, bananas. Were, they were offering fruit. Come on. That's and not very There sexy. was a letter sent saying, We are glad that the workers of the Aspen Institute are enjoying the fruit we've put out for everyone's benefit. <laughs> that means please take only one at a time. Bananas, though. I mean, come it on. It had my name written I all mean, over you t- it. You know, some Boston cream pie or some or luscious Napoleon or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're talking well, about. Well, another thing that it lends itself to is with Boston cream pie, it's constantly neatening off the ragged edges that other people have left. That's true. And so you're only making it neat and making <laughs> it look uh, tempting yeah. and refreshing for somebody else. 
whereas you are going through three or four or six actual portions of it while you're neatening up for the good of everybody else. Okay, Corby Kummer, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. All right, it. well, we're going to be talking to the food pirates in just a moment. <laughs> Corby Kummer joins us every week. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic and an award-winning food writer and senior lecturer at the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition and Policy. So coming up, why does that tub of stale pretzels look so tempting when we're at work? <laughs> we're opening up the lines and asking you, why do we break for free food in the break room? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Uh, Jim Browdy's back tomorrow. Jared Bowen is filling in today. Hello again, Jared. Hello again. So if you're just tuning in, we were talking to our food writer, Corby Cummer, about why we lose our minds when it comes to free food at work. Why do we go crazy over a bag of microwave popcorn? What is it about those bagels that have been sitting open-faced in the break room for hours, hardening at the edges, that nonetheless leave us salivating. Are we stress eaters? Are we bored? Is it because our cafeterias aren't much better? Is it because it's free? 877-301-8970. 877-301-8970. Are you someone who goes bananas over free food at work? Do you know why you do it? What's the lowest you've gone? <laughs> did you take the last donut and not even bother to throw out the box? Or worse, did you take three quarters of it and leave the remnant for somebody else to enjoy. Our number is 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970, bpr at wgbh.org, or tweet us at Boss Public Radio. Okay. Do you have any crimes you want to confess? No, I, me? No. I don't think so, but I love to watch this. So, yeah? So, yeah, no. Well, I feel like it, I can only say so much because there, there is a lot of food that's distributed in our newsroom. Uh-huh, and, yeah, uh, okay. And it does disappear pretty pretty quickly, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, since I'm not working at the Boston Herald anymore, I can tell you about what used to go on there. The same thing that Corby was just talking about, where there would be some high, you know, some big honcho meeting with the publisher and the top editors and stuff like that, and they'd have sandwiches or they'd have pastry. Uh, but mostly of the sandwiches <coughs> I remember, they'd have ham sandwiches, turkey sandwiches, you know, potato chips, like potato salad. And after the conference was over, they'd bring out all the sandwiches to the yep. newsroom with the, you know, the great unwashed. And it was... Really rather, <laughs> rather <laughs> Like shark attack? Yeah, and sometimes people would even go for sandwiches that had been half eaten. Ew, you would see them just dive right in. They really wanted the ham and cheese on rye, and they just went right for it. So we, we, it, it was as if, you know, you were totally destitute. It was as if you were someone that hadn't eaten in two weeks, and people would dry, dive into the sandwiches and dive. And sometimes they would eat the potato salad without the correct silverware. Like their fingers? Their is fingers. that what you're talking that about? Is which correct. is disgusting, which means that somebody who, who's just strolling down the hall afterward <laughs> and is taking some doesn't know that their coworker has just had their exactly. thumb inside the container. Exactly. That. And as I said with, with, with Jim, if we used to work at a commercial radio station with five radio stations, the uh, WTKK, which is now all uh, uh, music, and it was the same thing. 
somebody would come in. Wilson Farms was the best. And it, there would be an alert that would go out. And it wouldn't matter if you just finished an entire roast beef dinner, you know, right <laughs> during the commercials at your desk. The Wilson Farms comes in. They got the turkey, all the fixings. They got the bread. They got the pies. They got the wonderful sweet potatoes. They got wonderful desserts. And it was, it was just kind of crazy. It was like it was like cattle, you know, running toward the water in the middle of somewhere or other. Well, it's hilarious reading all these descriptions, too, and how unabashed people are about, you know, food is put out, a plate of cookies is put out, and someone will sweep in and take six because they think they're entitled, <laughs> that leaves one and a half for the rest of the office of 15. Yeah, it's crazy. So the story talks about how, um, uh, you know, people would have this cookie day at this particular place, and there was... People used to stampede down the hall when it came for cookies, and it got to the point where if you got to the location for the cookies like 10 or 15 minutes after they were shut down, there would be no cookies left. So they sent out an email at the office reminding people to take only one or two cookies so their coworkers could have some. But there was such a protest, and people got so upset that they couldn't take more than one cookie, they shut down the cookie day because it became such a big fight in the office over the cookies. You know what I just remembered? What? Now, now this is now I'm having traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Traumatic stress yeah. disorder because I, I can remember newsrooms. You're covering live events, election night, things like that. They would they would always bring in pizza for pizza. the staff and, and feed everyone because you're staying beyond hours and they don't expect you. You know they, they just want everybody taken care of. And I and some of the other reporters would be out in the field this entire time, so we're the ones doing all the running around, all the news gathering, and then we finally get back to the office late and there's nothing left. <laughs> Because all of the people who've just been sitting at their desks the entire time, <laughs> who have arguably the easier part of the job, have eaten everything. Now, if Jim, if he were here, would tell the story about how he goes to buffets with aluminum foil in his pockets. We can roll <laughs> the food into his pockets and take them home. Uh, Stephen just emailed. He said uh, he's all about the free food at the office because his briefcase is made by Tupperware. <laughs> and that's another one of the yes. complaints people have. That people, it, it, it's one person complained that they were at their old employee company. They had these appreciation lunches once a month, and they were catered from local restaurants, and the food was great, so you just show up on time if you wanted to get any. But some people would show up with Tupperware containers, just like Stephen down his office, take this huge helping of food for their lunch, and then start packing away extra food in the Tupperware for later. There were so many people who'd hoard all this food that if you didn't show up within 10 minutes after the lunch started, there was no food left at all. I mean, unbelievable. And then you have to go and, and face this person every day, and then you kind of know what they're capable of at the end of the day. Yeah, 877-301-8970. Oh, I just got an email from Lynn who says, the MIT, the Media Lab, has elevated free food frenzy to a science, of course, <laughs> installing a webcam on the counter oh. where remaindered food is left so one can monitor the exact moment when it appears. How's that? All right, okay. Should we, should we go to our calls? Let's go to some calls. Let's go to Nathan calling from Portsmouth. Hi, Nathan. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, how's it going? Good. What's your story? So I work at a giant electronics retailer, and one day that everyone kind of goes insane is the Thanksgiving and Black Friday nights. Wow. Even the day where... It's Thanksgiving, and people are coming home from their Thanksgiving lunches or dinners. The whole company buys break room for these or break food for these people working like 4 p.m. to 3 a.m. shifts, and it's madness inside the break room <laughs> and out the just all night. Yeah. So, so basically, the food has gone by 4:05, and you've got to be <laughs> working all night. 
but they just keep restocking it all night. Oh, oh so that's good. Madness the whole time. So that's good. Yeah, but then there are also the times where if you're closing, the food's already gone. So happens everywhere. Okay, that's a good one, Nathan. Thank you very much. Well, our staff is telling on a, a coworker here that one time they brought a backpack and filled the backpack <laughs> with free beer during a WGBH party and, and brought it home. How about that one? Okay, uh, let's go to uh, Russell in Cranston. Hi, Russell. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I work at a coffee shop in Providence, and we're, we're usually, um, we're usually uh, open. We, the openers come in at like 5.30. Yeah. Um, and, and... Russell, do we lose you? Hello? Hi. Nope. Got me. We thought we, we um, lost sorry. you for a second. Uh, so, the, so sorry, I, okay, I so, the other line. Um, so the people come in at 530. Uh, we come in at 530, and when we open shortly after, our pastries are delivered. So whenever we get extra, that's usually for us. And it's kind of an unspoken rule. Like, if you're not an opener, you, you, don't, take those, you don't take those pastries. Yeah. So uh, when sometimes you'll, you'll save it, and you'll go back there, and someone who came in at, like, noon will be eating your donut. <laughs> And, oh God! It's, it's like it's like someone slapped your mom in the face. It's awful. Jeez, <laughs> oh, Russell, that's a good one. Thank you very much. Listen to this one. This is from the Slate story. Uh, uh, these are all true confessions of people hoarding food and taking some, uh, wiping out whatever's there. A coworker who thought any treats were just for him if bref- breakfast tacos were ordered from my department. <laughs> we usually offer other departments nearby any leftovers. If he hadn't already, as soon as his coworker heard that leftovers were being offered, he'd go through and get all the ones he wanted, for example, all the brisket and hide them in his desk drawer before other departments could get any. He'd also get in line first or near first because he'd volunteer to help with the setup and would take massive amounts of whatever was there. If some folks didn't get first while he was loading up on his second, he'd say folks should have gotten there earlier. Management reprimanded him, but his answer was, I do not (laughs) care. (laughs) Including when he had food poisoning four times a week for keeping breakfast tacos in his desk drawer. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think the psychology of it is? It's just that it's free? I don't know. Well, I bet part of it, too, is, well, okay, I worked three extra hours last week, so I'm entitled to take 17 cookies right now. Yeah, the, yeah maybe that's it. You know, it's, a, it's that justification that you, that you work so hard. But, of course, you would never walk out with a box of highlighters or a whatever, right? Yeah. Without getting in big trouble or staplers. Yeah, you weren't supposed to walk out with that with that kind of stuff. But I must admit, last week, last Friday for our news quiz, we had Tiffany Faison oh, and her uh, spouse in here from uh, Sweet Cheeks and all these stores she's got, I mean, restaurants she has down there in the Fenway, and she brought those biscuits. <gasps> now, I have a thing for those biscuits. I have bought those biscuits. I probably bought hundreds of those biscuits. I got them for Thanksgiving. If I'm in the neighborhood, I stop. I can find a parking space. I buy them. You can take them home and cook them yourself, or you can buy them already cooked. I've bought them frozen. I love those biscuits. And when she came in, I must admit I had my eye <laughs> on those biscuits. They're huge, too. I did not want my coworkers to take too many biscuits. <laughs> I got out of here with four biscuits, and they are enormous. And I texted her that I had eaten three of the biscuits. <gasps> By like wow. Friday night, yeah, with all the honey butter and jelly, I, yep. she, she gave me these. Those are divine. Oh my God, they're absolutely <laughs> great. So certain foods I maybe go overboard on. Biscuits well, is one of them. My similar story like that is uh, I was filling in for you at one point this summer with Jim and the art, the artist who had created the fog sculptures. 
that were all over the city. Uh, I had already interviewed her, and through the curator, Jen Mergel, she sent me a nice little box of biscuits from Japan that Jen brought in, and I had to slowly move that tin over to, <laughs> to my side of the studio because I saw that Jim was eyeing it. I knew I was at risk of losing all of my fingers, well, but I, I had, to get, I had to get it. I mean, he's unbelievable. I go to the bathroom and he eats my lunch while I'm gone. Like back, and there's nothing less. <laughs> Let's go to Chris and Rosendale. Hi, Chris. Hey, how you guys doing? Good. I cannot believe Jim is not here to hear this. Right I know now. this is a, it's I a know, tragedy. But, but for that him. means we can throw him under the bus. That's right. <laughs> so two nights a week, I worked at a law firm from nine in the morning till nine at night. And if you work past seven, you're allowed to have free dinners. So I will get a free dinner that night, and then take home one for the next night, <laughs> and. And for my wife, and I have a new baby now, so I'm trying to figure out a way to to actually get food home for her. It, it's you're it's out of control. All about you're the, out of control, Chris. Food. Yeah, you're out of control. And no guilt whatsoever. That's the best part, right? No, I mean I'm working 12-hour days. I feel like I deserve it. See, exactly. Yep. Well, I think that's what a lot of people think that they think they can make <clears> up by their by their not very good pay or their long hours or their hostility toward their boss by eating all this uh, extra food. Girl Scout cookies are a big but thing. But it, it's it's just like extra money in your pocket. You get a free dinner and you don't right. have to pay for it. It, it. It's it's totally okay in my opinion. Well, that's true. I must admit, we get free food here from the Newsfeed Cafe. It's um it's very nice to have that, isn't it? Yeah. I may have a chocolate chip cookie it's in my bag. bag right now that I'm taking for after I leave, <laughs> leave the show. That might be happening this afternoon. Chris from Rosendale, thank you very much for the call. We're, talking, you, about, we're talking about this great piece in, in Slate that talks about people going so crazy that they hide tacos, or tacos, I should say, in their desk drawer because they you know, want to hoard them and take them home with them at the end of the day. And they don't care about their coworkers. Well, you were just on to something. It is Girl Scout cookie season, which is just, it, it also means bedlam in the workplace. Place, does it not? I, I think I think we've seen a little bit of this in the WGBH oh, really? newsroom too. Oh my goodness! And, what happened? You know, we're, we're we're a large newsroom, and there are, newsroom. actually aren't that many Girl Scout cookies. Mm-hmm. And especially if somebody comes by and takes thirteen of them, <laughs> then that just leaves a couple for the others. Oh, really? People have taken thirteen of them. I'm not saying that I've ever seen that. I have I have seen a total frenzy when a certain one of our coworkers brings in, brings in the bacon from Whole Foods on Friday morning. Yep. She used to bring in this whole thing of bacon from she Whole Foods. She still does sometimes. I mean, that was unbelievable. Or even Dunkin' Donuts. You know, you bring in Dunkin' Donuts, and, and there's there is, it's it's just a, a certain enthusiasm, <laughs> a, a joie de vivre, or whatever that people don't have about their own little food, even if their own little food is better. All right, let's go to Ki- uh, Tim. Excuse me, calling from Worcester. Hi, Tim. Are you a food pirate? Hey, Tim. Hello. Hi. Hi. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I worked at a shoe store one time that uh, actually sponsored an event in Worcester, and it was sponsored by Dunkin' Donuts. It was catered by Dunkin' Donuts. And at the end of the conference, they... um, Brought all the donuts back to the store, and I ate 22 donuts in 11 hours. 22 donuts? <laughs> That's not even possible. Oh, come on. <laughs> now, I cheated a little bit on the uh, jellies mm-hmm. because they put way too much jelly in it. So I squirted up the jelly and ate the donut. Okay, now, Tim, why did you eat all those donuts? I mean, were you hungry, or was it just that they were free, and you figured you'd just stock up, or what was the deal? Okay, here's the... Here's the answer. Yeah. Because they were there. 
just like the marathon. <laughs> I ran the marathon because it was there. Just like Sir Edmund Hillary, I climbed Everest because exactly. it was there. Exactly. It was there. I saw a peak. I climbed it. I saw a donut. I ate it. <laughs> okay. would have been proud of me. <laughs> Well, there is, I mean, if you're running marathons, I suppose you can afford to eat 21 donuts. 21 donuts is a lot of donuts. Uh, I, I guarantee you if you're running marathons, you're not eating 21 donuts. Okay, here's another one of the stories from this, uh, from this story about people going bananas. I used to work for a contracting company with a mix of on-site and off-site staff. The main office had very well-stocked break room refreshments, coffee, tea, soda, fresh fruit, candy, chips. The understanding was that staff were welcome to help themselves in the break room. But over time, some of the off-site staff started stopping by to stock up on food and drinks, too. And by stock up, I mean they brought bags and coolers <laughs> to take food from the break room. After a few months of the break room being completely empty by the second week of the month, management issued a policy saying the break room food and drinks were for staff working on or attending meetings at the main office and people went bananas, berserk, crazy. Petitions were organized. There was at least a, one hostile exchange during an on-site staff meeting. Numerous nasty emails. And in the end, the company got rid of the break room refreshments. Oh, see. Completely. Ruined it for there everyone. You, go. you, know, you go to these, uh, sto- a lot of these places that, um, you know, that, that are these startups, and they have a lot of uh, food, free food in the break room. But it's, it's, it's normally cereal or oatmeal or bananas or oranges or something it's not like the it's not like massive amounts of donuts i think it depends you know what i mean you're not yeah. gonna hoard everything are you brisket donuts maybe but not so much bananas and oranges no not so much. unless you're corby cummer yeah <laughs> then you're gonna take all the bananas and feel like a renegade 877-301-8970 is the number bpr at wgbh.org is the email the question is why do we lose all sense of decorum when it comes to free food, why would, do we show up with Tupperware containers and stuff the food in, or coolers and stuff the thing, or the backpack guy at WGBH who loaded all the beers <laughs> in his backpack from a WGBH party and took them home? Well, as Corby also said, because you're taking them from someone else's plate or table, they're someone else's calories. I mean, if you were sitting at home, would you ever eat 21 donuts? Of course not. Would you ever eat a whole, well, maybe some people would eat, a, I don't know. A whole pizza. I've eaten a whole pizza. It's yeah. easy to eat a whole uh, Well, pizza. I just stopped myself from talking because I realized I do all the things I was about to say. <laughs> not 21 donuts, I don't not, think. Not really? Donuts. Michael from Watertown, what do you think? Up, up, up. Hold on, Michael. I can't hear you very well. Can you get closer to your phone or something? Hello? Hi. Can you hear me? Not very well, but, but talk loud. Evolved in small social groups where free stuff was very rare, and if you hogged too much, there were sanctions against you, everything from people not grooming you to hitting you or just looking at you nastily, and we don't have that as much at work. And one reason we do it, especially at work, is because work is very unsatisfying for a lot of people, and food is satisfying at a basic level. Well, that's a very good point. It's kind of to get even. Uh, Michael, thank you for the call. It's kind of it's a bad connection. It's kind of like getting even with the boss. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're underpaid or things are, are are not so great, if they bring in some free food, you just go crazy over it. But it does seem, I mean, it does seem a little odd, especially if you just had a big lunch, <laughs> and then. <laughs> <laughs> and you go I down the squeeze hall. That in. And we haven't even talked about the people who take other people's lunches, but I guess that's a whole other Oh, whole stealing other things issue. from the refrigerator. Stealing from the work from the office refrigerator. refrigerator. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but you never know when you're stealing from the office refrigerator because tend to, you know, some of the office refrigerators have a rather 
uh, unappetizing smell when you open the door, if you know what I mean. No, but as you just mentioned, you never know with the chicken salad that's been put out either, that somebody has just come and dug their whole fist into it <laughs> right before you got there. <laughs> you don't yeah. know what germs you're putting into your body. Yeah, we're talking about food at work from this story from Slate, which really documents the excesses of people hoarding brisket in their, in their desk, people hoarding tacos in their desk, people stealing all the cookies. Uh, you know, instead of having like one or two cookies, they're having 12 and 15 cookies, and they're having so many cookies that management gets rid of cookie day because people just go crazy, loading up Tupperware containers, loading up coolers, loading up, you know, entire desk drawers with all this uh, disgusting, uh, you know, well, it's not disgusting. I, the cookies are good, I guess. Well, what but about you, Marjorie? You're, you, you're a woman who exercises a lot of restraint. I really can't see you. What would make you... Shovel a bunch well, the of biscuits. Into, the, oh, biscuits. The, the biscuits. I, right. I did go crazy. There's certain things I really love, like biscuits or like chocolate or like when they, uh, when Joanne Chan comes here and for Flower Bakery and she brings things for Flower Bakery. I've got my eye on what she's brought from Flower Bakery, <laughs> like a nice, delicious fudge cake or something like that. I have a sweet tooth. So those kinds of things would, could really get me going. I mean, I'm going to watch you next time. I'm going to watch you watching um, the any time of day. And sometimes we've had people come in here and I'm all excited because they're they're coming in for the news quiz and they're from the food business and I anticipate all day long what they're going to bring in for the free food. And they show up, and they don't have any free food. <laughs> and I'm just absolutely devastated because I'm expecting this, this, all, this, uh, this um, great meal, um, and then I don't get it. So it's very upsetting. But I'm not in Jim's, ca- I'm not in Jim's category. I'm not no. in Jim's category at all. Okay, we've wrapped this up. I think that we have not gotten to the bottom of why we do it. I guess getting even with the boss or because it's there are the two primary reasons why we do it. Yeah, and I think what we proved is that people are just, it's like, it's like a winning a marathon. It's, it's triumphant to be able to do it. I think it that's triumphant. what we've gotten to the essence of. We really needed Jim Browdy to give us the psychology <laughs> behind it. But since he's not here, we'll just have to carry yeah. on without him. Exactly. Well, coming up, CNN's John King is here to go over the latest headlines. He's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. We are live from a WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Jared Bowen is in for Jim Browdy. And joining us on the line to go over the latest political headlines is John King, CNN's chief national correspondent, anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays at noon and Sunday mornings at 8. Hello, John King. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday to you, too. So, John, CNN, um, where you work, of course, finds itself in the middle of a big story uh, Jane Mayer has got a, a, a breaking piece in the New Yorker magazine, and she, according to her reporting, and she's a very famous investigative reporter, she reports that the president specifically told two of his top advisors uh, to, that he wanted the Department of Justice to file suit against AT&T, blocking uh, this merger between AT&T and Time Warner, and that one of the reasons he wanted this done was because he wanted to hurt CNN. He's not a fan of yours. I think he's made that clear. He's always talking about fake news and uh, from CNN and all that kind of stuff. Um, according to this Jane Mayer story, he, uh, the president ordered Gary Cohn, who was then the director of National his Economic uh, Council, um, to pressure the Justice Department in front of John Kelly, who was then uh, the chief of staff. And uh, Cohn said he was not going to do it. Um, but that's what the president wanted. So... Um, what's the takeaway from this? 
Well, a couple things. Uh, I try to stay out of the business, if you will, of yeah. the AT&T Time Warner merger was a corporate thing. Uh, but number one, uh, if this happened, and Jane is a great investigative reporter, as you note, um, A, the president lied because he said publicly that he said during the campaign, by the way, this is, was no secret he opposed the merger. He said it as a candidate during the campaign. Uh, but he also said publicly that he did not do anything with official power. He did not intervene or interfere. Uh, he has said that. And the, the story here says, says that he called John Kelly and Gary Cohn into his office and said he was mad because he said if the story says he had told Gary Cohn, you know, 50 times, um, you know, to get the Justice Department to do something and nothing had happened yet and he wanted them to file suit. Um, and you rightly say Gary Cohn walked out and apparently turned to John Kelly and said, just ignore that, you know. Um, but it's, it's, it's an abuse of power. It's Nixonian for a president to get involved in individual transactions like that. You can have a philosophy. Administrations can have philosophies about uh, what they like and don't like in the marketplace. Um, but if the president picked up the phone and tried to put his thumb on the scale, um, that would be improper. And so will anybody do anything about it? Uh, it's, I think it's one of the things you might see the House Democrats, now that they're in power, um, we've seen in the last, just in the last 24 hours, um, evidence of the new world order here in Washington. Uh, but I focus just because I'm, I don't get involved in the AT&T, Time Warner, the big corporate stuff of it. What I would focus on is as a citizen, uh, it's another example where this reporting suggests the president has just outright lied uh, to the American people about things he's done in office. Yeah, you say another example. I mean, we, we I think most recently probably remember, and you, I'm sure, have more other, or, sorry, other examples to share about uh, Amazon uh, and how he wanted to limit that. Of course, presumably going after Bezos and the and the Post, his ownership of the Post. Right, and so that that's the idea. Look, again, if, if, if you have a president who philosophically doesn't like mergers, he wants more competition in the marketplace, um, and you philosophically say that's what you prefer, that, that's one thing. If you have a president who says, I don't like the editorial page of the Washington Post, therefore I'm going to do everything I can to hurt Jeff Bezos' business, well, that's an abuse of power. Uh, and, you know, and you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. I, you know, I can't explain the legal guidelines and stuff, but a, a, a president should not be individually interfering to put his thumb on the scale of individual companies or individual people within those companies, that's, that's an abuse of his power. Um, and we've seen that. And again, uh, you know, uh, I focus more on the fact that he just lied. Uh, and another one just exposed in the last week uh, by great reporting. This is a, this is a, this is, we're talking about news organizations, so I would make the case that this shows you the value of great reporting, Jane Mayer in this case. Um, the New York Times had great reporting last week, uh, some of the same individuals. John Kelly was involved in this one in the former White House counsel writing extemporaneous memos at the time, contemporaneous memos at the time, because they were upset about how the president was ordering them to approve Jared Kushner's security clearance. Again, the president and his daughter Ivanka have said on the record, on camera, they had nothing to do with it. This reporting documents that the president did have a lot to do with it. And so it's another thing the president has said that it simply does not hold up when you turn the sunlight of good media reporting and the facts on it. Well, the underlying question with Jared Kushner, which is scary to some people, is why he had trouble getting the security clearance. Uh, he's had close dealings with Saudi Arabia. Um, you guys were just reporting on CNN Today where a United States uh, and, and Saudi doctor uh, has been uh, tortured over there. Um, so we, we don't know what the problem was for Jared Kushner, and I think that's unnerving to people. Uh, we, d we don't know, and a lot of that is because it's classified and maybe we're not supposed to know. And, and look, is it possible that the CIA, some, the experts at the CIA, the experts at the Justice Department, the experts at other agencies, out of an abundance of caution, said, 
you know, look, there are these things. We're a little worried he could be subject to blackmail or a little worried that somebody could, you know, somehow uh, have influence over him or that his decisions would be compromised because of either his or his family's financial interests in that part of the world. Uh, the president, by the way, has the authority to say, thank you. Um, I trust Jared. I overrule you. But he said he had nothing to do with it. So I, I'm going to focus on the fact that what he said turns out to not be true um, based on this reporting and based on a number of other examples and, and things that people in Congress have seen. Um, but, yes, you're right. That, so what was it? And now, again, this is another example. Um, just today, two members of Congress – I don't think this is going to go anywhere – but two Democrats asked the new attorney general to open a criminal investigation into this. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. But I do think you're going to see the security clearance issue – be the subject of congressional hearings by the House Democrats pretty soon, and they want the memos. They want to read the memos from John Kelly and Don McGahn. Will the White House give them to them? We may have a fight over that, but I do think you're going to see the House Democrats try to explore your question, which is what were the concerns? How serious were they? And if they are serious and credible and well-documented, why would the president overrule them? We're speaking with John King. John, what insight do you have to this broad inquiry that's happening now that the Democrats, of course, have investigative power now that they have leadership once again? Uh, Letters have gone out to 81 agencies, individuals, other groups uh, that have echoes, an investigation, I should say, that has echoes of the, the Mueller investigation. I would say, Jared, it's, it's very aggressive, um, and it's something that makes the Democratic base happy. Uh, it's also potentially risky for the Democrats. Uh, David Axelrod, who was President Obama's top strategist when he ran for president and then for the reelection, uh, tweeting last night, uh, early this morning, that he worries that the Democrats might be going too far here, that it's so sweeping it might play into the president's witch hunt theme. Um, it is a snapshot of how things are done very differently today. If you're, I'm old enough to remember when Henry Waxman was one of the great House Democratic investigators. And what he did with the Oversight Committee is he would launch investigations, and we in the media would know nothing about them for months and months and months. Uh, and they would fight with agencies over documents, just like the Democrats are going to fight now with the Trump White House over documents. Uh, but it was all done quietly. And then when he got to critical mass, then he would call a public hearing and say, wham, look what I got. Now everything is played out publicly uh, because of the politics of the day, the pressures of social media, uh, the, the driving pressure from the bases of both parties uh, to do these things, to sometimes, sometimes reach conclusions before you ask the questions. Uh, and so the Democrats now have... These sweeping document requests from the president today and our Caitlin Collins, a great White House reporter on, for CNN, it says the lawyers are going to push back more aggressively, so we're going to have some fights about this. Um, if the Democrats come up with several new leads and then new factual conclusions that are supported by the facts and show abuses in the Trump administration, uh, then they will have proven this is worthwhile. The risk is... You know, the president says it's a witch hunt. Uh, and if, if it's just constant investigations and constant accusations and you don't get to a point where everybody, not just Democrats, is comfortable with the results and the findings, then it is potentially risky for the Democrats, and it could at least politically play into the president's hand in the short term. Well, the other thing that seems uh, risky to me, John King from CNN, is, is we're not hearing much about pre-existing conditions and health care and the cost of prescription drugs or infrastructure or some of these things. You know, the, a lot of Democrats have heard them say we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but and, and maybe that's partly our fault in the media. That's not what we're focusing on. We're focusing on uh, these investigations. 
No, I, you raise a great point, and I, I think well, one, uh, it's not my job, but one thing to be fair to the House Democrats is they are moving what they call H.R. 1, which is their ethics bill, um, new standards for you know, sort of members of Congress and new, new procedures that are supposed to reduce the impact of lobbying. So they are trying to move that through the House this week. I don't think it's going to go anywhere in the Senate, but they are trying to do that. Uh, to your health care question, I, I do think whether it's uh, on your health care question or the Green New Deal, um, issues which have broad support in the Democratic Party, there's also still some quite some significant disagreements within the Democratic family over how aggressive to be in pushing them. Um, you have the, many of the Democratic presidential candidates talking Medicare for all, even though some of them have degrees of difference, if you will, between their plans. Um, there are some Democrats who say we just won the 2018 midterms by defending Obamacare and saying we need to work on what, you, like you just said, pre-existing conditions, um, other strengthening fixes to Obamacare. Why don't we do that? But there are other Democrats who say, if we do that, then we're going to lose our leverage for Medicare for all. And so on some of these policy issues, there are disagreements and debates, sometimes fights, within the Democratic family, which is going to slow congressional action because they want to work out those differences before they bring something to the floor, and which means on some of these issues, this could go on for a while because they're real. Well, the other thing, too, is, is that uh, there's this schism uh, in the Democratic Party, and it's similar, of course, to the Tea Party people that came in, and they were very conservatives and wanted, uh, didn't want government to spend any money versus the so-called establishment Republicans. And now you have the uh, liberals, and of course, we can't mention a liberal Democrat these days without mentioning Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, as she's known from the Bronx and Queens. And supposedly, in this closed-door meeting of House Democrats, uh, she warned colleagues that if they continue voting with Republicans, uh, on procedural motions, this is according to a piece in the, uh, I think it's the Washington Post, um, and, and, and procedural motions, they could wind up basically on a, on a list f uh, for uh, primary challenges. And this is a debate because many of these Democrats come from moderate districts. So is this a problem, this kind of infighting in the Democrats, similar to what you saw with the Republicans and Tea Party versus the establishment? I think that's a great comparison. And remember, we've had these conversations in the past where, you know, winning is great because you're in the majority. Uh, winning also gets uh, challenging because it's like a Thanksgiving dinner. The bigger your family, uh, the more likely there are going to be one or two cranks at the table or one or two people, you know, uh, who you, you know, you start to, once you start talking politics, a fight breaks out. And so the Democrats, the, the richness of the new Democratic majority is this remarkably diverse group of people. Um, in diverse in every way, geographically, uh, from where they come from, their families, some new immigrant members of Congress. Uh, and it, and it's, a, it's fascinating, and it's a great experiment, and most Democrats celebrate it. However, it also comes with tensions, whether it's the anti-Semitism of one of the new members uh, that has caused a problem for, right now, and they're trying to work that out, or whether it's um, you know, more of a purity test from the AOCs. And, and part of it's just fascinating, Marjorie, it used to be you got a fresh, you were a freshman in Congress. You kept quiet your first, at least your first six months, if not your first term. Um, but we live in a different age. Uh, with these younger freshmen with big social media platforms, and again, uh, a lot of, and you can't blame them. If, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can seize a leadership role in her early weeks in Congress, why not? Right? And so she's testing the limits of her power and the power of the Democratic base. But yes, it's causing some bruised and hard feelings among moderates who say, hey, we can't. You know, we won't hold the majority very long if we lose our districts, and we can't vote for some of these things. John King, what anti-Semitism are you talking about involving a new member? Which, which incident? Ilhan Omar had some comments about, you know, that, the, uh, that she, she, has a, she wants to make an argument that the pro-Israel lobby is too strong oh, okay. in Washington. 
Mm-hmm. She, she wants to make an and she does want to make an argument about the Netanyahu government and its treatment of the Palestinians and its expansion of settlements, which are all legitimate policy questions and policy debates. But then she's talked about it's all about the Benjamins or um, the Jewish lobby pressuring uh, members of Congress to pledge allegiance to a foreign country, uh, dual loyalties. She has said some things that many of her Democratic colleagues and others others have just found to be you know, just these anti-Semitic tropes that you hear through, throughout the years. And what her colleagues are trying to tell her is, let's have the policy debate, but be careful how you say certain things, because some of what you're saying is offensive. And they're going to bring a resolution to the floor of the House tomorrow condemning anti-Semitism because they have all this political pressure uh, because she has said these things. Has the House been tested like this in recent memory? I mean, the, of course, we've seen just incredible change, and that's all been celebrated over the last few months. But now we're, we're realizing, as we've been talking about, the effects of this change. And, and uh, I mean, how, how does the old guard meet the, the, the new members coming in when there hasn't really been a, a test to that balance in recent memory? You guys should try to book John Boehner and Paul Ryan on this question. <laughs> uh, before, yeah. Before the former speakers, you know, they, had to deal, they had to deal with it on the other side. Again, you win, it's great, you get power. Uh, but in today's age, number one, you get people from different parts of the country who just represent different constituencies. And, and they're just, you know, those Tea Party guys, a lot of them would say, I campaigned. I, if Obama says yes, I say no. If Obama wants to spend a nickel, I say nothing. That's how they campaigned. So it drove their leadership crazy, but most of them say, hey, this is what I ran back home and people voted for me. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would tell you the same thing. Um, it's hard managing, especially in today's age, when, when social media age and the fracturing of the news media, where you can find an outlet that supports you, um, it is hard. And, now, and you're right, though. It's at Nancy Pelosi or John Boehner and Paul Ryan before them. Um, they get a few extra gray hairs uh, trying to deal with it because it's stressful. You know, one last thing for me, uh, John. Uh, I saw reported on uh, CNN right now that Rand Paul says that 10 GOP senators uh, may be voting against Trump's emergency wall on the border, a black wall to, to block the wall emergency. That's a r- up from the numbers that I heard this morning, which I think was four when I started the day. So we talked about schisms in the, in the Republicans, I mean the Democrats. This looks like a schism um, in the Republicans. Absolutely. Uh, look, if, if all Republican senators voted their conscience, um, the majority of them would vote against the president's declaration of a national emergency. They think it's an overstep, that Congress has the power to appropriate money, and they had votes on this, and the president should abide by the will of the Congress, even if he doesn't like it. Uh, because of their loyalty to the president, or in some cases their fear of the president, it's not going to be that huge of a number. Um, but I do think Senator Paul is right that it will be somewhere in the ballpark of 8 to 12, Uh, which is a repudiation of the president. That means both the House and the Senate will go on the record against his national emergency declaration. And they will do that with a couple of Republican votes in the House, probably around ballpark 10 in the Senate. And that's a slap at the president. It's not enough to override a veto. But the first veto of the Trump presidency will be about this and the border wall. The president probably likes that for his base. He probably likes the politics of that. But you're beginning to see Susan Collins came out against one of the president's judicial picks today. Uh, You're starting to see more and more Republicans standing up to some things, some things, not all, uh, but some things from the White House that they just frankly think are over the line. Okay. Anything sports-wise you want to talk about, John? Because I know Jim always asks you a sports question before you leave. You anything like to say about the Patriots, the Celtics, <laughs> the uh, Red Sox, spring training, anything? Spring training is awesome. I'm looking forward <laughs> to that part. Of the, Celtics and, the Celtics and the Patriots' ownership, we'll just leave that one alone right okay. now. Okay. Wait for yeah. Okay. Yeah, nice hot weather down there in Fort Myers, right? It would be a nice place to be today, I tell you. John, thank you sure very much. Always, always you great too. to speak with you. You too. 
John King joins us every week. He's CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch weekdays at noon, Sunday mornings at 8. Coming up, pianist Carl Gerstein is here to talk about his upcoming piano concerto premiere. He's next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library. Jared Bowen, thank goodness, is here with me, and we're listening to a newly released re- recording of pianist Carl Gersten in a live recording of Bussoni's Piano Concerto with the Boston Symphony Orchestra. But if you want to listen to an even more recent collaboration, you'll need to hear it in person this Thursday through Saturday at Symphony Hall is a concert featuring the world premiere of Thomas Addis' Concerto for Piano and Orchestra, which was commissioned by the BSO and composed for Curl right here, who's right next to us in Studio 3. Thank you so much, so much for coming in. Uh, That was some technical... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> skill just realized. There, tell us what you're doing with the VSO. Well, uh, this week, I think uh, we all are taking part in, uh, in music history in the making, really. Um, Thomas Addis, I think, is uh, one of the very greatest uh, musicians and composers uh, alive and a very close association with the Boston Symphony, a very dear friend of mine and musical collaborator and he's written a new piano concerto for me commissioned by the Boston Symphony and this morning in fact we had the first reading with the orchestra and and Thomas conducting Uh, and you know it's really amazing to be present at the birth of um, what I think is truly a masterpiece and a major addition to to the repertoire, and so listeners this week have also a chance to really take part in um, in this uh, very important uh, moment musically. Masterpiece is a very strong word. What what in your mind already makes it a masterpiece? Well, <laughs> the substance, in the sense, uh, the fact that I think Thomas is able to not be inhibited by the the great past musically that that we luckily have as uh, as musicians and to take traditions and play with them and be playful with them so the concerto is firmly rooted in the great tradition of of, of piano concertos and at the same time it's 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 wholly original and i think this this is the great difficulty so that i think for the listeners also it's going to be very recognizable there things happen that one expects and is used to in piano concertos, but it's all very original and very much um, Thomas, and it's um, it's a very 
economic uh, shape of the piece that, that I think, again, uh, sort of, there's not too much, there's not too little. It, it really is, um, has these proportions and I think qualities and uh, craftsmanship of a masterpiece and it's terribly engaging and I think amusing to listen to. It's a beautiful slow movement uh, with uh, sadness and contemplation and a very boisterous first and third movement. So I think it's really a fun piece. You know, for people that don't understand um, the way this works, how unusual is it for an orchestra to commission a a whole new uh, concerto like this? Is this this doesn't. This is pretty unusual, isn't it? That it's this. It doesn't happen every day. To put it no, in a absolutely. And you know, these things. Um, the genesis of this piece as an idea was in 2012 when Tom and I were here with the Boston Symphony playing his extant piece for piano and orchestra called "In Seven Days." And this is when the idea was born. He said, "Well, I think I'd like to write a proper piano concerto." And the BSO said immediately, "Well, we're we're commissioning it." So, so it's kind of has its trajectory over six and a half years and now so you know it's landing this <laughs> week so to say but um, I think it's important to remember that the Boston Symphony in particular has a really incredible history and incredible track record of commissioning truly important uh, pieces if you just think about Bartek's Concerto for Orchestra if you think of Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms so um, so BSO is really responsible for a number of major additions to the 20th century music canon. And I think this tradition is live and vibrant in the BSO and now continues uh, into the 21st century with pieces like uh, Tom's New Concerto. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the, the, these classical music foundings that have found their way into this piece and, and what you're steeped in. But a lot of your background is in jazz. Which, which one might not consider for, for, uh, for somebody who's listening to your work. I mean, how did you gravitate towards jazz in your earlier youth? Well, first, really, by ear, as a, as a child studying classical music, I started also hearing jazz recordings, and then um, that was very attractive as a, as a sound, first of all. And so I started trying to play jazz by myself and eventually ended up coming, in fact, to, to Boston to study at Berklee College of Music. And so I studied both classical and jazz. In fact, in the concerto, in the third movement, there's some uh, definitely very jazzy riffs, again, transformed through the prism of, of Thomas Addis. And I think um, this, again, brings to the point that music is... Um, much more of a of a unified thing. So we have these artificial borders that that actually are much more porous between you know what is classical, what is what is jazz, and uh, and I think artists and composers, Ravel was very engaged with with the sound of jazz and transformed it into his music. And at the same time, you know, Gershwin was a great admirer of Arnold Schoenberg and Alban Berg. So, um, so the borders are, are porous, and 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 actually, at the in this border area is is where the interesting things happen usually. We're talking to pianist Carl uh, Gerstein. He's going to be performing Thursday through sun- Saturday at Symphony Hall, the world premiere of this uh, new piano concerto by Thomas Addis. You know, you have a very, sorry about unusual, unusual story, I think, um, because you grew up in Russia. You are 13 years old. You're studying the piano there, uh, obviously very seriously. And then you get a chance at 14 to go halfway across the world and come here to the Berkeley 
College of Music. I mean, was that a little under? That's a big trip and a big for someone that's 14 years old. How was that? Were you homesick? Did you miss your mom and dad? Did you miss your favorite foods? Or what was it like? <laughs> well, you know, when Berkeley uh, made this exception and took me as a uh, college student when I was 14, their condition was that one of my parents would, would come, so they, the school wouldn't be legally responsible for a 14-year-old on his own in uh, Boston. And I should just mention the, the exception being that you're the youngest student in Berkeley yeah. history. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so my mother came with me, and actually, in fact, my parents ended up staying in the Boston area. My father was able to come a couple years later because of uh, document and immigration hurdles that one needs to jump through. And um, it was, looking back, of course, it's a humongous change, but I was so excited. And uh, the availability of information that I did not have, uh, especially as far as jazz concerned, you know, growing up in Russia, and then it was, it was like floodgates opened, and you know, at the time you still had Tower Records with... You know, oh, the, yeah, the, on Mass the, Ave. The million CDs, and, uh, and so it was just so engaging. So I actually kind of, uh, I think, skipped uh, being, uh, being homesick or being overwhelmed because uh, I was just so busy trying to soak it all up and then I started thinking years <laughs> later so, so it, was, that's, it was good but To even get to that point though what kind of practicing regime did you have to, to be a young child with that sort of skill that would, that would qualify for such a scholarship were you practicing two hours, three hours? No, I think that would be that would be an understatement, an understatement. Two, three hours. Um, I think uh, you know to, to be a so-called virtuoso instrumentalist you know, one has to study uh, from a very early age, and, uh, and in fact, you know, in Russia, one of the things about the education system that we had these special music schools, where in fact, from the first grade, uh, six years old. Yes, there was already uh, a curriculum and an expectation that this is professional music training. So uh, you had the regular subjects and music subjects in the same building, but the accent was on the music. Uh, Subject, so um, which uh, you know, which I think it can be a wonderful system. So, if you started at six, when did you actually start at the piano? When I was about three. About three, and did you go to a teacher, or your parents help you? Or? Well, my mother was my first teacher. Okay. And she actually specializes in teaching um, young children, and then and then you know, and then at school different and a number of teachers. Okay, so you have to apply to these music schools and you have to have quite a little repertoire as a five-year-old, I guess, to get in, right? And also, not only do you have to apply to get in, but you have to work hard at staying in because, you know, there were, uh, I think, about 30 children admitted to the first grade, but by the third grade... uh, 12 were told, you go wow. study in a regular school, you can continue music as, oh a, no. as an aside. <laughs> oh and then no. after, you know, after sixth grade, there was another culling. So, <laughs> so, so it, was, it was definitely a different system than, you know, everybody is a winner until 14. So yeah. it's, uh, they, don't, they don't mince words <laughs> or actions. So you're producing, you're out. That's it. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, going back to what you just mentioned, being here in Boston, just kind of absorbing, but but at what point did, did music really start to take shape in terms of what you wanted to do in the world with music? You know, in a, in a good way or in a good sense, um, it's a nebulous process that there wasn't um, a moment where I said, okay, you know, this is going to be my profession. And plus, you know, even if one makes that decision, but then life happens and being in a 
so-called creative profession. There's no guarantees whatsoever. But I think when I was about 10, 11, when I went to my first international piano competition abroad from, from Russia and had some success there, and so that started a little bit taking shape in my mind. But I think the guiding light was the curiosity and um, interest in, in music and where that journey would would take me and through some combination of, of work and certainly you know uh, lucky coincidences then then this, this one travels down this this path uh, forward but but it wasn't a particular moment that okay you know I shall I shall be a concert pianist but I always knew that I wanted to do something with music I really liked music I still do <laughs> so, well, that's which good. Is, you know, which is good. <laughs> that's fortune, yes. Yeah. It, so when you get out of Berkeley School of Music, where did you go after that? Well, then I went to Manhattan School of Music yep. in New York. And then after and you that... you were about 20 at that point. No, I was uh, 16. Oh, excuse me, 16. Yeah. That's right. So, we started wow. early. Yeah. So start <laughs> wow. early, finish early. But then, so by the time I was 20, I finished my bachelor's and master's. And so then after that, as I joke, then after that, real studying started after I had my degree. So then I went to, to Spain and studied with actually a very famous uh, Russian piano professor, Dmitry Bashkirov, who happened to be teaching in Spain. So I went there. And then after that, I studied in Italy, and then I studied in Hungary, and started living in Germany, started teaching in Germany, and kind of going back and forth between the U.S. and Germany, and essentially traveling uh, nonstop and playing. But there's not many people that do what you do that arrive, arrive reach your level of virtuosity that you can be playing. I mean, as you as you do with symphonies all over the world, uh, and and make a living. I mean, how many how many Virtuosos, pianos. We're, we're strange flukes. Yeah, <laughs> and not and not very many, right? No. Yeah. So we have like the Michael Jordan over here <laughs> of, 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 of pianists. You know what I was also curious about? Um, this is a this is a regular citizen question, just a mundane question. But you're a pianist, and so I thought I'd ask you. Uh, you mentioned in one of these stories about how you'd like to acquire more pianos. And um, is 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 Steinway still state of the art piano, or is Yamaha? eating their, their lunch now. now as my uh, dear friend and mentor uh, said, the famous uh, pianist Alexis Weissenberg, he said, you know, when Steinway is at its best, it is the best. So, um, so I think I would, uh, I would agree with that. But I think it's very important that, that there is diversity and Yamaha is making strides every year and really make an excellent concert instrument. And Bösendorfer has now a new model that's a very interesting and very viable concert instrument. So, so it's very important also for, for Steinway that, that, that there are different pianos, there are different um, sound concepts, and I think uh, there's cross-pollination, so I think that's very important. Okay. But Steinway has accomplished something incredible because de facto when we hear the sound of a piano on the radio or anywhere, we're hearing the sound of a Steinway piano, and, and that's a remarkable accomplishment for, for a company that's 150 years old. One of the things I'm struck by with you two is, of course, you're here, we're talking about a, n a brand new piece, uh, as you said, which played for the first time really this morning with the orchestra, but you have also made a mark in, in, in finding new ways into works that we think we have known so well by Tchaikovsky. I mean, that must be such a thrill for you to, to make these discoveries. Well, absolutely. But, you know, we are, I think the best um, comparison is uh, the analogy to 
to actors. I think an instrumentalist, the performer, is really an actor. The composer is similar to a playwright. And so, yes, it's uh, absolutely wonderful if you're engaged with um, uh, Hamlet and all of a sudden you discover uh, that, that there were four verses omitted from Hamlet's monologue and you get to present that. And in some way, this is a little bit what happened with uh, Tchaikovsky's first concerto that I started playing in this uh, text version, so in composer's own version, and turned out that what we've been hearing for uh, over a hundred years is actually text that's been that's been altered. So imagine if that happened to you know a Shakespeare play or some some canonic text where you say, well, actually, you know, that's not what the writer wrote. So so it's a thrill, but uh, it's part of the engagement with with the sus- substance with the, with the, with the musical text, which is which is really part of our work, which is why. Uh, we're so-called interpreters. Uh, a big thrill to meet you and to hear this music, and thank you very much uh, for coming in, and you can explain everything about how to get tickets, etc. This Jared Thursday Bowen. through Saturday at Symphony Hall is a concert, as we mentioned, featuring the world premiere of Thomas Addis's Concerto for Piano and Orchestra, which was commissioned by the BSO and composed for pianist Kirill Gerstein. To learn more, go to bso.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, and I hope, I hope to see some of you at the concerts this week. Absolutely. Well, thank you as well, audience, for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can find us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes. Tune in tomorrow for Art Kaplan, Shirley Lee Young, and Ali Narani. And tomorrow at 3 o'clock here at the GBH studio at the BS, uh, BPL, Bob C. continues to host Next Stop, a series on transportation, so be sure to drop by and check that out. Our crew is Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Trusky, and Arjun Singh. Our engineer is John LeClaw Parker. Our on-site engineer is the wonderful, amazing Ron Milton. Special thanks to the Newsfeed Cafe and everybody here in the audience today. And thank you very much, Jared. Jim Brown will be back tomorrow. I appreciate very much your coming in. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I'm Jared Bowen. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow. Listen to this fantastic music and have a wonderful afternoon.